Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah for uh, coming today and listening to us on the Thought Adventure podcast, where we're going to be discussing uh, an incredibly crucial and important topic, and that is, is it coming home or is it going to Rome? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who are probably not in the UK, you probably won't know the reference or the joke. Yeah. But obviously, that's not the topic. That's just about the football. Tirana, apparently, people, some people are kicking the ball around. Yeah. Uh, England versus Italy. Uh, so the actual today's topic is going to be on uh, why do we say one God? Why do we say one necessary being? Uh, you know, some people just argue and they say, well, look, you know, you've proven a quote-unquote cause for the universe or a necessary being but why is it your god why can't it be a multiple uh, or multitude of gods why can't it be zeus or odin and some pantheon uh, of gods why does it why does it look at your particular creator so they they argue this and one of the criticisms that muslims face particularly i think even actually our show faces a little bit of this type of criticism is that they say oh you're only focused upon this philosophical or this rational dis- discussion around belief in a creator. That doesn't prove Allah. That doesn't prove your creator. So uh, I think I just want to open up that particular question to Jake first and foremost is, well, you know, are we trying to say that, you know, there's this Islam here, this belief in the creator or these rational arguments have absolutely nothing to do with the proofs and the evidences for Islam? Or is there some sort of connection between the two? Yeah, so uh, salam everybody. And uh, just to let you guys know, Rome is taking it. It's it's, it's not England, but that's right. But um, no, so yeah, I understand the criticism. People think, well, we're just talking about these abstract ideas. And we're not really getting down to the heart of the matter of the fact that, you know, Islam is true or that uh, the one true God is Allah. And I think it's a bit of a um, misunderstanding by some people, because when we talk about natural theology, we have to understand what that is. So natural theology is the basic idea of, you know, discussing God and evidences and proofs of God apart from uh, revelation. So what you can know about the creator from rationality or from the mind alone. And what we do a lot on the show is we talk about those proofs. So we talk about the different um, cosmological proofs. Um, We talk about like uh, the arguments from consciousness and things like that. And they're all meant to be taken together as sort of a uh, collective proof for the existence of God. This is anyway how I view it. And I think what some people don't understand is that when we talk about natural theology and these different arguments for God's existence, they're not something entirely separate for the case for Islam or the case for Allah, the, the specific God that we believe in. No, they're meant to go hand in hand. So much of those same arguments that we use, they're not just merely for the one, uh, this sort of general deity, but they're completely compatible with the God of Islam and, and the God that we worship and we believe in. And... On the contrary, and I, I don't want to make this so much of a comparative thing, but if you if you compare, for example, 
a Trinitarian conception of God or the Christian conception of God with the Muslim conception of God, <clears throat> and even many Christian philosophers will readily admit this, you cannot arrive at a Trinitarian conception of God uh, strictly from a naturalistic uh, or a um, sort of uh, general revelation uh, understanding or idea. These concepts cannot be derived. And with Islam, our conception of God, because it is intuitive and it's, it is rationally accessible, which the Christians will, will grant most of the time, because a lot of these same arguments that we use, they use the same ones. However, the bridge between the arguments that we use, that we both have in common, and our conceptions of God are radically different. So in order to get from the standpoint of these cosmological arguments to a specific Trinitarian God, uh, many Christian philosophers will either tell you it cannot be done, or they'll try to use certain argu other arguments to get you there, right? Or they'll just tell you flat out, look, you can't do it from natural theology alone. You need special revelation. But no, as, as Muslims, we don't. We can say that the gap between natural theology and the God of Islam is very small, if anything at all. I mean, all of the type of arguments when we talk about the contingency argument and we talk about the Kalam cosmological argument, we talk about uh, consciousness, we talk about design arguments, ontological arguments, which we haven't gotten into. All of these different arguments are perfectly consistent with the God of Islam, and we don't even really need to go much further. The only thing at that point we really need to talk about is uh, the necessity of revelation, uh, specifically dealing with our um, you know, commitments to the Creator once we understand that He exists, uh, what, what are our responsibilities and duties to the Creator going to be, the necessity of revelation, the necessity of prophethood, and discussing some of those finer details. But as far as the actual model and conception of God, they're pretty much the same. I mean, there's not really much that we need to add on. So I think what Sharif's question is getting at is that what we want the viewers to know and to understand is that we're not just talking about these abstract ideas about this general uh, deity. No, all of the arguments that we're using for this one true God are perfectly consistent with the Islamic paradigm. And then going into the specifics, the, the bridge gap is, okay, well, which specific re revelation is true? And, and those type of things are really the only additional things that we need to consider. But uh, before I continue going on for a while, I want to give a chance to... Uh, either Sharif, you, for you to come back if you want to ask me something to clarify or uh, Abdu to come in. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Abdu, have you got any particular points that you want to add on this particular section or this particular question? Or have you no, got I, don't, I don't think so. I, mean, I think, I, think, I, think uh, I agree with everything Jake said. And, and that's really uh, what it's about. A lot, a lot of people don't understand uh, the, the, that, that the Islamic conception of God is um, virtually identical, or at least very, very close to to what we arrive at in natural theology. So, so uh, people, when when they ask, um, you know, okay, so these arguments can bring you to a first cause or a god, but not particularly your god. 
Um, I, I think there is a bit of a misunderstanding there on, on, on how God is identified. God is identified through the concepts of God, right? Through through, through the, the the properties that we attribute to God, and and uh, really that's 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 the only way you can do it. So the conception of God we arrive at through natural theology, as Jake put it, is. Uh, very very close to yeah. the Islamic conception. Of God. I think I think what it is is that with a lot of um, atheists, uh, you know, generally non-Muslims, but specifically atheists, their conception of God is like, you know, and I don't want to use this word because obviously it's derogatory, but they think it's like this big man in the sky, isn't it? Yeah, and so this big man in the sky has a particular personality. Yeah that Allah is a particular name for a particular type of deity or deity, yeah, particular type of God. You know, like Odin is or Zeus is or, you know, whatever, you know, names Jupiter, whatever they want to use. What they don't understand is that our conception, Islamic conception of God is you believe in one creator, necessary being, independent, eternal, yeah, and upon which everything else depends upon for their existence, yeah. And creator, and obviously has will and intentionality to create. So, if you can prove those things, yeah, those key, these key attributes, then effectively you've proven the Islamic conception of the creator. Yeah. Now, the addition to it is to say, okay, what revelation would we expect for this creator sent to send to us? Because there are other arguments, and I think we argued in the stream about from deism to theism. Where we said, well, it's not just a disinterested God or a creator that's not going to send revelation. We expect revelation. So I think, if guys, uh, the uh, audience want to check that stream out again. You can see the argument. So if you're now going to see a revelation that's going to be sent down from the creator, if it doesn't fit within something that we've rationally ascertained about the the, the nature of the creator in terms of the attributes of the creator uh, and the you know the things that we can understand from the reality about the creator. If it doesn't fit within that, then inevitably you're going to discount that as a revelation. If it fits within that, and really only Islam, I would say, fit, fits within that particular understanding. So that adds to, yeah, it's not the complete evidence for, but it adds to the evidence for the revelation. Um, but this goes on to maybe this the specific topic of the stream today uh, is really about, okay, why one God? Why can't we say uh multiple gods uh abdul i don't know if you want to quickly address that and i'll go on to jake as well yeah well um yeah so so i i mean i think you can say that it's just that what you mean by god there is going to be radically different than what we mean by god and and what we mean by god is the the um the deity we arrive at uh through natural theology and also specifically through uh, revelation that is an independent, transcendent, uh, all-powerful, all-knowing being that isn't arbitrary, arbitrarily limited in in any capacity. So, so um, I mean, this goes to what you were saying uh, earlier, uh, Sharif, about um, um, you know um, God being a man in the sky, and and that that seems awfully close to what. It would entail if there were more than one God, because then there would be different characteristics that are necessitated in order to distinguish between these gods and all of us gods. And all of a sudden, you will have a a um, a restriction on the uh, capacity of of uh, either God. And and the God that we arrive at, or the conception of God that we arrive at through natural theology, if you look at our streams 
from necessary being to God and, and, and other streams where we talk, talked about cosmological arguments, it, it, it's, it's uh, the best explanation or the, the best inference we come to on, on, on very solid rational grounding is that this God must be uh, not limited arbitrarily. He must be uh, uh, um, unlimited because arbitrary limits are a thing through which we identify contingent beings. If something is arbitrarily limited, if it behaves in a particular way, for example, um, water behaves in a particular way. It has a certain causal capacity uh, at which it cannot, uh, uh, you know, uh, have any kind of influence. It, it cannot, uh, for example, um, uh, have the same causal capacity as acid. So, so these things, these contingent beings have arbitrary limitations and through that we look for explanations for why they are the way they are. That's part of what a contingent thing is. So if there were more than one uh, necessary being, the problem there would be that, well, the, the causal capacity of each necessary being or the, 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 the omnipotence of each necessary being is all of a sudden limited because if, if their wills conflict, which necessarily uh, um, will happen if you want to maintain free will, because I know you can think of a scenario where their wills are just perfectly aligned and they do everything together, and that's what our Trinitarian friends uh, try to maintain about the Trinity, but then if that's the case, then you're just unnecessarily positing extra entities because we're just talking about one will. But if you're going to maintain free will, then necessarily the wills will conflict. And when the wills conflict, that's an arbitrary limitation placed on the causal capacity of one of those beings. And all of a sudden we're back to square one. We need an explanation for why it can do this, not that. And all of a sudden it's not uh, the ultimate grounding of all logical possibilities. So that's just the gist of, of uh, yeah. one of these arguments. I'll, yeah, so that, that's good, alhamdulillah. And I want to come back to that point, but I'm going to ask Jake maybe uh, just this particular issue. What is What do we mean when we talk about the principle of discernibility? Uh, and how does the principle of discernibility relate to this discussion about one God and having one God having... You know, maybe like say you like I think Abdul touched upon the point. You could have this pantheon of gods who do one will, yeah, who are not arbitrarily differentiated. So where would the principle of discernibility fit within that? What is it, and how would you how would that how, apply in this situation? Yeah. So when we talk about um, you know Leibniz's law, the law of identity, and talking about you know, discerning, when you talk about discernibility, we're talking about discerning between two objects or two things. And if two things share exactly all the same properties, such that there's really no difference between them, then it really just collapse just into one thing. And so the question is, well, if they differ at all, in what sense do they differ? And if there is a, a, a substantive difference between them, then yes, we can say that there's two, but then we want to take a look at, well, what actually that difference between the two things are, and is it relevant to the con conception of God and who God is? Because I think one thing that, one argument that I like and that we haven't really talked about is uh, this sort of ontological argument. I mean, I don't want to go into too much detail about what it is, but the, the basic concept and how I think it ties in with this is that it conceives of God as the greatest possible being, right? So if we say that Allah or God 
is the most perfect being that exists. Well, then when you say that it's the most perfect being that exists, that is setting up a situation in which there could only be one possible thing or one possible being, one possible existence. Because the very nature of the definition of God and the terminology that's being used is the most perfect being. It is the perfect being. And so if it's the most perfect, then that by necessity means that it's going to be a set of one. There cannot be other entities within that set of what it means to be most perfect. So if we define God this way, and it's not ad hoc because this is how God is classically understood, that he is the most perfect being, well, then we can easily see and understand that if such a being exists, then there only could be one. Otherwise, it would make no sense to say that this is the most perfect being. Now, how that relates to your question, Sharif, is, well, if we want to say, no, 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 there's more than one, well, then we're going to have to adopt different uh, you know, language and terminology to describe it because then it couldn't be the most perfect because there would have to be more than one, first of all. And the second thing, if we imagine say two gods or however many you want to imagine, but let's for simplicity's sake, keep it with two. We imagine two gods and they all share in exactly the same properties and there's nothing to discern or make a distinction between the two. Then in reality, we're just talking about one. We're not talking about two gods. And so I think that that principle is very important to know and understand um, because when we talk about whether or not there's one God or more than one God, we can use this principle to identify what, what we're actually looking at. Are we looking at one thing and, or are we looking at two things? And if we put that in conjunction with the conception of the greatest possible being or the most perfect being and what Abdu actually said is, we realize that anything other than uh, perfection and the most maximal or most perfect type of attributes, whether it be omniscience, omnipotence, etc., anything that is a, even a slight degradation of that, it cannot by definition be called God. And so if we have this one perfect being that has these maximal attributes that avoids this sort of um, sense of contingency or arbitrary limits that Abdu talked about, then we can perfectly understand how we get to the idea of one God. So I hope that explanation, I try to tie everything together. Yeah, yeah, no, alhamdulillah, it's a good explanation. I think uh, uh, it's only, I was thinking, you know, prior to, uh, you know, uh, this actual stream about the different arguments. And one of the arguments obviously uh, was going to be the argument about perfect, uh, perfect, the maximally perfect being. Uh, and how that necessarily entails one. But I think, uh, and also I think what's really important is what you explained about the principle of discernibility or the principle of identification. How do we identify that there's more than one thing? Now, somebody might turn around and say, well, it sounds very philosophical, but actually Imam Ghazali uses the same argument to discount the necessity or the impossibility of more than two creators. Uh, so just really focusing upon this point, if I was to show you this bottle, and I say that uh, you've got another bottle. So there's, there's another bottle. It's in the exact same temporal spatial location as this bottle. It is the exact same size as this bottle. Yeah. It is the exact same weight as this bottle. Yeah. Then how many bottles have I got in my hand? You're going to say there's only one bottle because there's nothing to distinguish them. 
there's no spatial location between them there is no you know if i had another bottle which is slightly bigger or slightly smaller then you're going to say well you know you've got two different bottles how do i know well one is slightly smaller or slightly bigger than the other bottle or slightly heavier so you we as human beings rationally identify something as being different uh, from another thing by having different either intrinsic or extrinsic properties uh, to another thing and i think this is what abdul was saying as well which was this point which is that um, if you've got two creators, you're gonna have to say that there's one creator that has a particular attribute that the other creator doesn't have, yeah? And if the other creator has a particular attribute that the other one doesn't have, then why, does, why is it the case that it doesn't have it if they are necessary beings. Necessary beings means they don't have arbitrary limitations. So it's not the case that they could have this or not have this and still be considered the creator. Yeah, so they have to have these necessary attributes. And so if you've got two different creators, then necessarily they'd have to have all the same properties, including sharing the same will, uh, which uh, maybe I'll get into a bit more detail or I'll ask Abdul upon that. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm just reading the comment. Yusuf is too scared of Italy doing anything today. <laughs> so, uh, uh, no, no, alhamdulillah, you couldn't make it unfortunately because of the change of time. So yeah, so actually, let me just uh, pause on that point actually and just go to Abdul uh, and ask him um, why is it specifically we couldn't say? Uh, I know Jake's ta already talked about it, but why why is it specifically that it can't be the case that you have two creators? Who share all the same properties, but one creator, yeah, uh, or the, but they have two separate wills. They have two separate centers of consciousness. Why would that be problematic? So it's sorry. Can you repeat that? Two creators, separate wills. Yeah, two creators with all the same properties, but two separate wills. Okay, or one creator with separate wills or separate consciousnesses, right? No, no, Which I'm is sort of like two creators. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. So, yeah. so I think I think so. I think there 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 are two aspects to this. So there there's there's the epistemological concern, right? And then there's the ontological concern, right? So the epistemological concern is how we come to know the characteristics of the creator, right? And and uh, if if you're gonna say uh, two creators with um, separate wills that are let's let's assume for the sake of simplicity completely aligned with one another they never conflict they do the same thing and and you know the world is 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 contained in the harmony in which we see it because their wills are aligned with one another well then from an epistemic perspective why are you positing the second you're basically you're basically only concerned with one will at this point so i i don't see the the, the need to posit the second and this is going to be a problem with any arbitrary number you place on you know uh, whatever form of polytheism you want to propose because anything other than one god or an infinite number of gods is is going to be uh, an arbitrary limitation and uh, the problem with that is uh, as i've mentioned uh, first of all it's not necessary second of all um it's it's uh it's way too specific and we know that when you make uh, your theory 
like let's say right now you're coming up with a theory you want to explain the origins of the world cosmologically uh philosophically and you posit something that's you say that the the, the necessary being has the power of 77.9 for example you're when you're way too specific in the theory you're proposing right now you have a way heavier burden in trying to pr prove that okay well why two why three why 15 why not 25 why is this number not that so that's the epistemic concern now the ontological concern you said two separate wills with with uh, uh you know two separate beings with separate wills independent beings yeah. well this is this is the problem independence aseity i mean how can you have that if the necessary being that we arrive at through natural theology necessarily is unlimited does not have arbitrary limits and Josh Rasmussen speaks about this a lot, by the way. So, um, I mean, I mean I've, I've, I've read some of his stuff about this, so uh, credit has to go out to him. And this, this thing about arbitrary limitation is very, very significant because uh, arbitrary limitations are one thing through which we identify contingent beings. So you're saying two separate beings with their own wills. Right now, their wills are going to be limited necessarily because one's will cannot overpower the other. If one's will ca can overpower the other, then the other is necessarily limited because, you know, th then he will be overpowered. And if it can't, then that's a limitation too. So either way, uh, you, you you can't uh, you can't make this work. And uh, and also there's there's the, the there's the idea of sovereignty as well. I mean, God is sovereign. I mean, when we talk about the, the whole discussion about free will and predetermination there the reason that's such a serious discussion and there's so many views on it and it's uh, a very rich discussion is because of this problem of how to maintain god's sovereignty on you know uh, uh, free will on human free will in the existence of human free will so god's sovereignty sovereignty is something that we see as necessary in the necessary foundation of reality that does not have any arbitrary limitations that's all powerful all-knowing and and if you're going to posit multiple beings then the, the sovereignty is compromised so, uh, so, so there are many paths you can take yeah yeah so jake uh, i mean you agree with what abdul is saying basically which is saying that if you have two independent eternal unlimited creators with two or or even if there's more than two but if they have separate wills that necessarily limits each one yeah, that's right. And uh, I do want to touch on another point that <clears throat> Abdul was mentioning about, uh, as far as I understood him properly, that when you talk about uh, how many gods there are, and if you want to deposit an additional god or three or 15, the question is why? I mean, why, why is three the magic number? Why is two the magic number? Why is 15 the magic number? And it seems arbitrary. And, uh, you know, as people may be familiar with, um, we have this understanding of Occam's razor, which is basically the idea that you do not necessitate, you do not like multiply entities beyond necessity. And so if that's the case, all of these arguments get us to the necessity of the most perfect being, there's one creator, etc., then somebody who wants to add on to that and say, no, 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 wait, there's two, or no, there's there's 10, or there's 15, they're going to have to do more explaining because their theory requires more work than the person who simply says that there's one God. And I think what Ab part of Abdu's point was, well, if you're going to say two or five or 15, well, that seems so arbitrary. How are you going to possibly explain 
the necessity of, of or even giving a pro, uh, an argument based on probability for why there's this arbitrary number of gods. And I think that that that's a huge problem. Now, on the issue of will, that's perfectly right. I mean, you give the example all the time of say there's like a feather on the ground and say that there's there's five omnipotent beings that all possess the same will. Right. And. They, they, one of them wants to will to move it, you know, like five inches to the left and the other one wants to move it five inches to the right. The, the question is going to be, well, is the, is the feather, first of all, is it ever going to move? Because if they're both omnipotent, then their wills might just cancel each other out and then nothing even happens. Um, so that's the first thing. Second thing is, if they have, if one of them is omnipotent and the other, the other's will is not, so they don't have the same power. Then, like we said before, they, that God is not really a God. He's like a demigod. He's not really God in the ultimate sense because he doesn't possess the same power or will and ability to move the feather wherever he wants. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is that some people want to say, well, you could have a situation where you have multiple gods and they're all happy and they get along so well. And so whenever they want to move the feather, they're like, oh, yeah, I want to move the feather in the exact same spot. Or even if they don't, they're like, all right, you know what? Uh, I'll let you move the feather over here to, to make you happy. But the whole problem with that is, and this was actually something that got brought up in a recent discussion on my channel, but I don't want to go on a tangent on that, is what is the truth maker or what is the thing that would possibly ground these gods who are all powerful from, uh, from basically disagreeing with one another and trying to do different things? Um, there doesn't seem anything. You have to be able to tell some type of additional story to explain why these five gods are just going to be so happy that they all agree. And if, if these five different gods want to move the feather in a different place, what is going to happen? And that's a serious philosophical problem. Are they all just going to cancel each other's will and nothing is ever really going to get done? Or if one thing is going to happen over another, then it seems like either that individual God's will was more powerful than the other four, or you're going to have to come up with some type of story to say, well, even when the five gods disagree and their wills are all the same power, one of them is going to be able to move the feather where it wants. And then the question is why? And I don't think most people are going to have a robust philosophical story to tell us of why the feather is going to be moved by one individual rather than the other. And so I, I know that was a bit of a lengthy explanation, but I hope that helps. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that I think Alhamdulillah explains the point, I think, generally, which is why we say that even if you have two necessary beings, they all collapse into one will. So one, obviously, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're saying that there is no separation in terms of properties between the different necessary beings, because then that would render both uh, quote unquote necessary beings no longer necessary, but contingent, because one would have a property that is uh, not necessary to itself. Yeah. With another, uh, which differs to another necessary being, which again, uh, doesn't share that particular property. And so therefore they're no longer considered necessary beings because they could share those, they could have those properties, 
and still be considered the creator. Yeah. Uh, but also this point, which I think is really important as well, which is that if you've got two necessary beings, even on a, you know, saying that they have the same properties, but the only difference between the two is the fact that they have different consciousness. Then in that situation, you have this um, almost, it's almost like a form of omnipotence paradox, isn't it? Yeah. Where, you know, whose power, whose will, uh, you know, uh, supersedes. And then what you have is you have to have people positing, well, actually, they just have one will. And if they have one will and they have all the necessary properties, you're positing one being now, yeah, from the principle of discernibility. So you might as well uh, uh, just, um, just, just assume, not assume, but just logically accept that there is only one, one being. Uh, Abdul, I want to sort of bring in the verse of Quran regards to this. Uh, what does the Quran say about this particular topic uh, area about uh, ne necessity of a one, one creator, one being? Yeah, well, interestingly, the Quran, uh, again, is, is, is very in line with this um, rational path we take to determining uh, the oneness of God. So, so um, I, I think uh, in the Quran, it's mentioned from two different angles, as far as I know. So there are two specific verses, one in Al-Anbiya and the other in Al-Isra. So I'll read out the one in uh, Al-Anbiya. The one in Al-Anbiya says, uh, بالله من الشيطان الرجيم, لو كان فيهما آلهة إلا الله لفسدتا فسبحان الله رب, رب العرش عما يصفون. So this verse is saying that had there been any other gods in them, in the heavens and earth, they would surely have fall, fallen apart. Now, uh, before I give my comments on that, let's read the other one. So the other one in Surah Al-Isra, verse 42 had there been other gods along with him, then they would have sought, constantly sought a way to the owner of the throne. Now, what's interesting here, in my view, is that there are two options. So if these other gods who are alongside the one true God... Uh, are truly gods, then God is like basically bringing their position to an absurdity. He's saying everything would have fallen apart because if they are truly gods, then they will have their way. They will have their own free will and they will be sovereign over everything else. So in that case, everything would fall apart because necessarily there will be conf conflict and necessarily one God won't uh, place this arbitrary limitation on the other. So it's basically bringing the position to an absurdity, saying it's not possible. Nothing would have existed in the first place. The other verse basically says that if there were other gods than him, and then there was this situation where, okay, their wills are compromised. Now, these gods, that their wills are comp compromised, Again, this takes us back to what I was saying at the idea of contingency. If their free will and sovereignty is compromised, that's an arbitrary limitation on their uh, omnipotence and their uh, causal uh, capacity. And that leads us to question, okay, so why this arbitrary limitation back to the contingency argument until we reach the uh, unlimited being? And this verse says, if there were gods other than him, in this second scenario where their wills are compromised, then they would just constantly seek to get themselves closer to the owner of the throne. Basically, they would be his slaves, not gods, in the way we mean God, because God is necessarily the foundation. So it's interesting that it covers it from these two angles. And it's also interesting that many polytheistic religions 
and even as as a monotheistic religion, uh, Christianity, uh, some 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 forms of it, what they say is that many of these demigods are just mere reflections and and you know representations of the one true God who is transcendent, right? And it's in a way uh, that's also mer mirrored in the Quran where the disbelievers sometimes say that we only worship these demigods to bring us closer to the one true, true trans transcendent God. And what comes to mind is one of uh, my modalist friends, uh, we, we know him, he who says kind of the same thing, that God creates a, a form of himself, basically a demigod, in uh, the created world in order so that we can know the one true God. But then uh, God is knowable without without uh, any of that. So it's interesting that the Quran covers these angles that we we can very easily arrive at uh, through a rational path. Yeah, I think there's also another aspect to that verse of Quran as well that seems to uh, come out to us, uh, which is more intuitive, I would say, which is that we see a harmony within the universe. We see that things, there's an interrelationship between things. You know, uh, the laws of gravity allow for the sun and allow for the earth to rotate around the sun. And then this allows for an atmosphere and this allows for life. Uh, and, uh, you know, you have cosmological constants within the universe that allows for the expansion to be at a particular rate. There's, there seems to be, a, you know, even even the existence of the moon you know, the fact that if it was slightly uh, closer to the Earth, uh, it would then fall into the gravitational pull of the Earth, things like this. So you have just, and I'm not saying this is a definitive argument, but you do, when we sense the universe around us, and if we already rationally come to the conclusion that a creator exists, we're sensing a harmony that seems to have one planner. Uh, regards to this. Uh, Jake, just, uh, and, and by the way, I'm, uh, to the audience as well, we're going to bring in callers very soon, inshallah, yeah? Uh, just one final question, actually, Jake, because I wanted to, you mentioned this point about a perfect being, and it reminded me of Surah Al-Ikhlas, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah samad. Yeah, I don't know if uh, that's in relation to to this particular topic as well. Obviously, the first verse is, Qulhu Allahu Ahad. Um, sorry, my mic was muted there. Just um, remind me in reference to what exactly? So you said that the maximally perfect being yeah. uh, is has to be one. And Allah mm -hmm. subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran that say that Allah is one. And then he uses this word as-samad, this independent, complete, perfect. You know, the words as-samad can mean complete, perfect, not in need of anything. So it implies perfection with regards to this. So I'm just mm -hmm. saying, is that, that is that like a, like a, um, any what's the word to say, uh, a correlation between what we can arrive at rationally and what the Quran is also affirming from Revelation as well? Yeah, right. I mean, I think it means, uh, you know, an eternal necessary being. When we talk about <clears throat> perfection, obviously all of those things are wrapped up within it. And that's perfectly right. Now, I did mention um, the ontological argument before. But I think it goes hand in hand with this because the Quran's conception of who God is, he is the, the most perfect being. There's there's none greater than him. There's none comparable to him. Uh, even within that same surah, the, the final uh, verse of that surah makes that proclamation that, you know, th there's nothing comparable to, to God. And that's the point is that God is in this set of one. <laughs> there's nothing else 
in this set of of one besides besides God Himself. And um, I think you're perfectly right. I think that Surah Ikhlas, uh, for those who aren't familiar, it's uh, the 112th chapter of the Quran, basically summarizes Islamic theology up pretty much in in four simple, easy to understand uh, verses. And, uh, you know, it basically says that uh, Allah is one, like what you said, he, he's self-sufficient and eternal. Uh, he doesn't beget or he's not begotten and there's none like him. And so the fact that there is none like him in that ultimate sense, any degradation, if you compare God, any slight degradation is not going to be the most perfect being. Allah himself is the most perfect being and he is in this uh, category of one there's nothing else in that category that could ever possibly be in the same category as he is um now i before we go back to you sharif i did post uh in the chat i posted a link to join the, the stream um it was also pinned so you can see that in the youtube uh, live chat that the the link to join the stream is uh pinned as a message there I don't know if you guys want to go there yet or if you want to hit on something else, Sharif, before we go to the uh, the guests. Uh, are we are we waiting for anyone at the moment? Is there anybody in? Well, I, I just posted it, and okay. we've already got like four people waiting. So um, yeah, yeah. we okay. can take our time if we want to go on a little no, no, bit more. No, no, I just want, just want to really quickly summarize, actually, what the points that we just raised there before we just go to our first guest, inshallah. So I think um, – uh, in this discussion, what we basically talked about is if you've got more than one creator, then each creator is going to have to have their own particular set of attributes. Yeah, And if they have their own particular set of attributes, then as a result, they're no longer necessary beings, but they're contingent beings because you have limited or arbitrary attributes. I think the third, uh, second thing that uh, Abdul mentioned is, well, when you say there's two creators or three creators or four creators, these are just arbitrary numbers. You know, uh, and so why give arbitrary numbers? Because by definition, you're limiting the the creator. Uh, and I think this links also onto the point with regards to the idea of Occam's razor, which is, well, if you've got two explanations and both have equal explanatory power, then you would go to the more simpler of the two explanatory power. You wouldn't add something extra to it. Because to add something extra, the burden of responsibility now is upon you to in order to demonstrate why you need to add extra. So if you if one absolute eternal creator explains creation, you don't need to then go to two or three or four because it's uh, uh, unnecessary. I think we also mentioned the point uh, with regards to the two or more uh, uh, unlimited creators who would necessarily limit each other by their wills. Yeah, we yeah. can't have. Uh, to um, omnipotent, willful creators or more because they'd, in essence, uh, limit themselves. Uh, and then I think we also mentioned about how there's continuity within the creation that indicates that there is like one planner as well. And then I think we mentioned uh, a number of verses of Quran. Oh, actually, sorry, the one I really liked was the perfect perfection being, yeah, the perfect, the maximally perfect. So if you've got a maximally perfect being and then you have another being, who is also supposedly maximally perfect, and you have to discern between the two, then one has a property that the other one doesn't have. So which one's perfect? Yeah. yeah? The one that has, you know, you, you, so you're going to have one which is going to be more perfect because it's going to have, quote-unquote, better properties. 
So if you've got the most perfect being, then the most perfect implies only one being, one creator. And anything that's less than perfect wouldn't be the creator or wouldn't be worthy of worship, would be uh, any a creation, a limited contingent thing. And therefore, it's not going to be considered God. So I think we've gone through a number of arguments. Uh, I think, uh, Jake, if we bring on the first uh, guest mm -hmm. on. Yeah, and the one last point. I don't know if yeah, you sorry. mentioned it while you were, were while you're explaining it, the point that I think you mentioned it, and I think Abdu mentioned it as well, about the seemingly consistent um, you know, design in the universe. Just like the Quran mentions, it says, you know, if there were more than one God, we would experience chaos, you know, because there would seem to be like fighting over each other. But no, we see like, okay, water is H2O. It always has those sort of properties. It doesn't change one day. It's not like gravity is shifting drastically. There's consistency within creation that uh, I think tips us off to the fact that there's one creator. Um, so I think that was one additional point. But um, no, I, I wanted to just emphasize on that. An important point. Thank you for bringing it up, uh, Sharif. I kind of forgot. Uh, the, the, hey, your your mic's a bit low, Abdul. Yeah, Abdul, bring speech. it down to your okay. head. All right. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> no, so I was saying it's a very important point. I just wanted to emphasize it on it a bit because um, the, the the idea of consistency, like if, if we can give an analogy, like a laptop. If if you if you look at this laptop and you ask, well, who made the laptop? Well, your, your mind isn't going to go to like 10 companies at the same time. It's going to be one source that made the laptop because it seems to be working in harmony. There seems to be this holistic picture that is harmonious. Everything uh, works uh, in line with the other. So in, in a similar way that uh, the, the, the universe is what we're looking for an explanation for or all contingent things which seem to be working in harmony with one another. This isn't a design argument. This is just to say that there is consistency and whether whether we're talking about philosophy or science sometimes when we talk about ultimate explanations that really is what we're looking for for an explanation for why contingent things exist or in the case of science why the universe or cosmos exists so it, it almost again with not just cause uh, Occam's razor in the sense that everything is harmonious does point to the fact that there is one source. Uh, it's it's conceivable that there are two that worked on it, but then again, it takes you back to the arbitrary limits and Occam's razor and stuff like that. So all in all, I think we have a cumulative case hmm. for why it, it's yeah, reasonable so there was one so God. There's, yeah. So there's Occam's razor, there's consistency within the universe, and then there's logical contradictions trying to affirm more than yeah. one creator. Yeah, which I think fits very neatly, which goes back to the beginning of the show, where we said that look, what we're proving rationally is what Islam has come with. Yeah, so we can understand that this revelation is not something from a human source, but it's rather going to be from a divine source because it seems to fit extremely neatly as to what we rationally can uh, uh, understand about the nature or, or the 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 uh, the what we expect of our creator, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yeah, so I, I don't know, Jake, if you want to uh, bring the uh, guest on. Yeah, sure. We're going to go to the first guest, but before I go to it, I do want to let everybody know that there is, as I'm sure most of the uh, viewers know, that there is a football match coming on in two hours. So we're, we're going to limit the time until then. Uh, that's going to be the deadline. I'm just saying that because I don't want people to think that you know, oh, somebody joined and then we, we purposely didn't want to bring them on. That's going to be the deadline. We, if we 
you know, don't go that far. We may end it a little bit sooner, but that's going to be the deadline. So yeah, we, we just, we just, we just want to see England lose. That's all. That's all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you guys want to join in, make sure you yeah. join in um, now as you have some time before before the game starts. So it's, we still got two hours, but I'm just putting it out there so that everybody knows we're not dodging anybody or doing any kind of weird stuff. Um, with that being said, the first guest that we have here, and I do apologize if I'm not pronouncing your name properly, um, is – uh, cliched or cliched. I'm I'm really sorry. I'm not sure. But um, how you doing? Assalamualaikum. Yeah. So I have a question uh, about the contingency uh, contingency argument and the question is uh, I was talking with an atheist and he says that he thinks uh, the universe is the necessary existence and he he thinks that uh, there's nothing in uh, there's nothing contingent and so how do we address now uh, the his problem here so he, he he doesn't think that anything at all is contingent is that it yeah, he thinks that uh, the universe itself is the necessary existence, and he says that, um, yeah, and there's nothing in con uh, contingent here. Yeah, but I just want to be clear because I don't want to straw man the guy. I don't know if he's saying that the universe may be something original uh, state of matter or energy or something like that is the necessary being. Or does he think that literally everything that exists in the universe in the form that it is, is also necessary? Like your existence uh, or the fact that you have, you know, a certain hairstyle. I mean, is every little thing necessary or just the universe? I just want to be clear on that. Yeah, he says um, all matter and energy just always existed and nothing is uh, contingent i mean that's how he describes it okay um yeah i mean i guess we could answer it two different ways uh on the first point of you know just matter and energy um being necessary i don't know if you want to hit on that sharif or um yeah uh, maybe just yeah, go go for it, Jake. And then if uh, if I, if I, <clears throat> if I need to, I'll add something. Okay. So on on the idea of matter and energy um, being necessary, obviously the question is, well, why? What about them? You know, makes them necessary. What? So when you have a discussion with these people, you have to clearly uh, define what necessity and contingency is. So when we talk about what's necessary. It means that it couldn't possibly be any other way. So it's logically impossible for it to be another way. Uh, contingency means that it could have been different. Now, it exists, but it could have been different, maybe was in the past and could be in the future. That's what it means for something to be contingent. And there's nothing obvious to me about the existence of matter and energy that makes it absolutely necessary. In fact, even from what we know of modern uh, 
from modern science and things like the Big Bang, it seems to be the case that all matter, uh, time, space, and energy had an actual beginning. And so it's conceivable that they didn't exist and then they did have a beginning of existence. So uh, in that case, I'm not really sure exactly how we would get to necessity, but I think what you need to do is you need to define these terms clearly and then explain to the person, well, it's not obvious to me that uh, matter and energy is necessary. In fact, it seems to be contingent. Uh, just look at the world around us. It, it's constantly fleeting. It's constantly in flux. There doesn't seem to be uh, anything special about a particular arrangement of matter and energy that would make it necessary. In which case, you know, the ball is in his court to demonstrate or try to prove how, in fact, all, either all matter and energy are necessary or a particular um, you know, subset of it or particular arrangement of it is necessary, in which case I, I don't really think that um, the naturalist or the atheist is able to bear that burden of proof and really demonstrate that. So that's what I would say on the first point. The second point is if he wants to say literally every single thing that happens in the universe is necessary, well, then that just seems flat out absurd because then he's saying that there's a, a modal collapse, which means the distinction between what's necessary and contingent gets uh, collapsed into one such that everything is necessary. And that would mean that, you know, the amount of hairs that I have on my head are absolutely necessary. They're not contingent. They could not possibly have been any other way. And to me, that just seems absurd on the face of it. And for him to bear that burden of proof to try to demonstrate that the number of hairs on my head are absolutely necessary and could not possibly have been any other way just seems ridiculous. So those were kind of the, the, the division I would make between those two types of um, arguments and my response to both of them. I don't know if Sharif or Abdu have any comments on that. Hey, I cliche, to, uh, yeah, go, so go ahead. Go ahead just really quickly to cliche, uh, has that helped? I don't know if you want to ask a further question or comment. Yeah, that does help. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, so stay online, and Abdul's also gonna. Yeah, I just, just, just well. really quick, and and Jake, uh, uh, Jake maybe said uh, this already. I wasn't listening in the beginning, uh, but uh, the the a lot of times people confuse what's called nomological necessity which is a fancy way of saying necessary based on a set of laws right so like for example it's necessary that if i let go of my phone it's going to drop because of like gravity right uh, a lot of people confuse that kind of necessity which with metaphysical necessity metaphysical necessity is what things must be like like they couldn't have been another way so if if you say for example that it is metaphysically necessary for my phone to drop whenever i let it go then what you're saying is it it is not possible in any possible world it couldn't be the case that gravity doesn't operate but we know that i mean even in this world on different planets it it, it operates in a different way so so the point is that uh, a, a lot of people confuse this kind of necessity based on natural laws like you know it's it's necessary if you you know put uh uh, H2O together, you're going to get water, right? Uh, they confuse that kind of necessity with metaphysical necessity. What we're concerned with mostly in uh, uh, contingency arguments is metaphysical necessity or 
ontological necessity, which is just, again, a fancy way of saying what the way things must be. Or like if you say something is metaphysically necessary, you mean it couldn't have been in another way. And as Jake put it, it's it's quite absurd to say that it couldn't have been the case that he, you know, had one extra hair on his head. Yes, you can say it's necessary based on the laws of physics in this world, but you, for you to say that it's completely metaphysically impossible for that to have happened, then then I think that's, that's a huge burden to bear. Yeah, I, I think it's also important that it's because, you know, in science, it's because we identify something is a logical possibility. That's why we do science. Yeah. So when people start to say, well, everything's necessary, then they actually make the whole process of science redundant because you don't because what's the purpose of science? When you when you look at, for example, uh, why does water flow at room conditions? Yeah under one atmosphere, you're going to look into the properties of water, you're going to ex try to explain it by its atomic structure, its, you know, electronegativity of the oxygen atom versus the hydrogen atom, these types of things, yeah? So you're going to have to look for, you're trying to look for a further explanation. Now, the thing with science is that there's a point, and this is where the problem is, there is, a, uh, there is a, almost an arbitrary point where you have a limitation of the mind that can't go beyond which can't find out the fundamental explanation or the fundamental why. Now, at this stage, what people do, atheists do, is they just say, well, we just say it's necessary. But that's an arbitrary point, yeah? They've, they've accepted contingent things require an explanation, contingent things require an explanation, get to a contingent thing. And because of the epistemic limitations of science, they can't go beyond that. Then they say, well, it's just necessary. No, it's still a contingent thing. So therefore, it still requires an explanation. Now I have to go beyond science. And if I go beyond science, I'm using my rational faculties. And therefore, I come to a necessary being. If I then affirm that there can be contingent things that require no explanation, that they are, quote unquote, necessary, if they want to say it in that way, or it's independent, then that that destroys the rest of science. Yeah. Because then you could have a situation that water could no longer be liquid at room conditions, yeah, I one atmosphere under one gravitational force, et cetera, et cetera, because it doesn't have an explanation. It could be any other way. And so you, they don't want to go down that route, yeah, for water. So if you don't want to go down that route, you want to have an epistemic uh, methodological consistency in your epistemology. So you want to say, actually, contingent things require an explanation. You can't have an infinite regress of explanations, or you'll need at least a foundational explanation, that foundational explanation is within a necessary being. So Shed, is that? Sharif, Sharif, or, Sharif or Jake, maybe one of you can comment on that comment Brother Hayan put up there, because I thought it was a very good comment. Um, I, I forgot where it was, but he was saying that some people say that modal collapse entails, yeah, this one so maybe if one of yeah, you yeah i mean that, yeah. We, we, before we comment on that <clears throat> uh cliche did we answer your question satisfactorily yes Thank okay you. Uh, unless unless you have any further comment or, or quick question we're going to uh address that comment in the chat and then move on to the next guest if that's okay yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, cliche. Thank, thanks for coming on. Assalamualaikum. Welcome, salam.
Okay, so just before we go to the next guest, here it was. It says, there's that argument that if modal collapse is true, it destroys the concept of moral obligation. Did you want to comment on that, Abdu? Uh, I mean, maybe one of you guys can comment on it. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree uh, with it. I think it's self-explanatory because if everything is necessary, maybe you mm -hmm. just want to expand on it. If everything is necessary and it couldn't have been otherwise, then like, let's say the murder, the murderer couldn't have chosen not to murder, then how is he morally accountable? It's kind of an argument against determinism, true. But, but, but if, 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 I mean, you're going a step beyond determinism when you're saying everything is actually metaphysically necessary. It's not just deterministic. You're saying that everything has to be the way it is. Then, then moral obligation just seems it just seems pointless at this point. I mean, first of mm -hmm. all, I mean, it basically comes down to free will. So there's no free will. So how are you accountable for your actions when your actions couldn't have been otherwise? You basically have no other choice. So just brings the whole position to an absurdity again. And we know there are moral obligations. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. All right. So let's, um, unless, Sharif, unless you want to comment on that, I think it's pretty obvious. Let's move on to the next guest here, which is uh, John Fisher 2.0. Uh, before you start talking, John, I've, I mean, I've known you for a couple months now, whatever it is. I've only seen you at 2.0. When did you upgrade? <laughs> so the original John Fisher was an English martyr and saint. I like to say that I'm 2.0 because you can't improve on the original. And frankly, I don't think I in my life will ever do something as amazing as stand up for a queen who is unfairly getting divorced and end up with my head um, on a pike on London Bridge. So uh, take that for what, it, for what it's worth. Okay. <laughs> but, but I'll say this much, um, it is going home, lads. So um, England is not going to lose. And <laughs> oh, come on. Now, I, I find it funny that the Roman Catholic is the one cheering for England and you're the one cheering for Italy, but let's uh, let that aside <laughs> for now. Yeah. Uh, but, well, uh, Jake, Jake's, Jake's Italian, so he's got his biases too. So. And, oh, and, I'm an, and I'm an ex-Roman Catholic, so. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. <laughs> I, I'm cheering for the referee. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, there are a few points for monotheism that you guys did go over, and I, I do have to say that I agree with most of them. So... Um, uh, for example, the principle from parsimony, that one I more or less agree with. Why have a, why have a stack of um, omnipotent, omniscient, um, omnibenevolent beings when you can just really have one? Um, it seems to just uh, cut down in terms of explanatory power. And the second point I do want to agree with is the idea that if there is one god, they are, such a god is going to have one will, and it, that will is not going to clash. So it's much more expected. You don't have to explain issues of disharmony. So that one I do agree with. Uh, the one I'm going to disagree with, them, though, is in terms of the principle of indiscernibility. So this is often considered the, um, the inverse of Leibniz's law. So on Leibniz's law, if X and Y are identical, X and Y are indiscernible. But uh, the opposite, the principle of indiscernibility, says if two things are indiscernible, Therefore, they're identical. That one is actually a bit more contentious. And uh, before I get into why, uh, we're going to have to discuss a bit of a thought experiment. Uh, it's uh, one covered by an English philosopher, Max Black. Is that okay? Sure. All right. So Black was known for opposing the principle of indiscernibility using this symmetrical world's thought experiment. So 
suppose you have three iron spheres. So they're made of the same material. And these iron spheres are not just made of the same material, but they have the same weight, they have the same size, they have the same density. So if you can think of a quality one sphere has, the other two spheres are going to have said quality. Now, intrinsically speaking, there's nothing to render them indiscernible from one another. But maybe there's an in extrinsic a difference, a difference of relation. So think of this symmetrical world as having the following relation. Those spheres that I mentioned are in equilateral formation. So they're in the form of an equilateral triangle and they're each five meters apart from one another. So at this stage, they don't really seem to have any indiscernible qualities from one another. They live in a symmetrical world. So there's nothing to which they are closer to or farther apart from. And on top of that, anytime you can think of a, a quality, maybe as a way of discerning it, like, well, hypothetically, someone could just mark one of the spheres. Well, we'll just stipulate that it's immarkable. Well, how about movable? It's immovable. So you could just keep uh, lapping on these properties. Now, it seems to me that these uh, spheres are really indiscernible from one another. I, I can't really access such a world. It's what I'm thinking of in the abstract. But it, it seems that I'm still able to discern between the three spheres. And that's probably one of the stronger arguments against the indiscernibility principle. So when uh, Imam Ghazali was uh, giving the example, well, you were uh, giving the example, Sherry, of the water bottle, uh, this is a bit different because now you have three different objects, which truly are indiscernible in relation to one another. And it doesn't seem like this principle would get us to these spheres are really just one sphere. So how would uh, we, how would you ad address this? Would you say, okay, fine, maybe this is an exception, but the principle is still truth tracking. Chances are if one guy is talking about all these indiscernible qualities and he's not specifying like this, this really elaborate world, we could assume safely that, that we're probably better off just assuming there is one entity. Or do you think that this is, uh, this is refutable or there is a good argument against this. Yeah, I'd, I'd need to go into this because I've read this uh, mm. uh, a few months ago actually, so I'd have to look at this. But I think the problem is, is that when you try to apply this to an unlimited independent creator, mm. then I don't think it would uh, it would track in the same way. Yeah, so maybe you could argue that this is for contingent things in this abstract realm. But when you start talking about an unlimited independent creator, then I think you're going to have problems regards to that. You're going to have to have then arbitrary limits between one creator here who mm -hmm. is at set distance to another creator here. And that, that's where the problem would exist. Right. So this goes to a, another issue then. In uh, medieval philosophy, there's a, a dispute that actually got a lot of um, scholastics uh, throwing pens at one another. So it was on the principle of individuation. Um, now, I'm not really sure of how angelology is done, like the study of angels in Islam, but would you say that they're unembodied minds or would you say that they're um, made of some kind of ethereal uh, substance like uh, light, uh, for example, or something analogous to light? Uh, yeah, we, this, this we see the, the issue is, is that when we talk about the angels, malatika in Arabic, Mm -hmm. uh, we we can't really talk about specifically their ontology. We are told in the Quran that they are made of light, but we don't know if that is analogous to what we understand as light. Uh, what we generally do is we generally believe that these are 
beings that exist uh, outside of a rational capacity that we're informed of within uh, our revelation and text. So we don't really go into any subject area in terms of what type of being it is, what the properties are, how these properties could exist, etc. Right, so this is going to be a bit foreign to you, but uh, we understand them to be a, a spiritual entity. So that is one that doesn't have any um, any body of any sort. And for a long time, actually, in Christianity, we actually held that they were made of a spiritual matter, like a, an incorporeal matter. Now, you might be thinking, wait, aren't you just saying at this point they're made of non-material material? And yes, it did basically sound like this. So of course what was the answer because you need something to differentiate the two things let's say you have michael and you have gabriel and this is the first instance that they're that they're made they don't have any specific memories or ideas in, in their own minds and the, they would just begin to formulate them but at this point they don't really have anything to individuate them from one another if they're all if they all have the same essence if they all have the same uh, property of being an angel because you need at one point some accidental property when it comes to me you everyone else we're all made of material substances so we'd say what individuates us three is the fact that we have three independent bodies in three different um, places of space at, at three different times we have different accidental qualities on top of our essential qualities but the angels don't really have that at the very least at their first instance so uh, the and if matter is what individuates, then how is one angel going to be told apart from the other angel? Thomas Aquinas responds by saying, no, look, when it comes to the angels, they're all going to be of different uh, qualities and essences. So the way that Gabriel thinks is going to be different than the way Michael is poised to think. And they're all really each an individual essence. So basically, Michael is going to be of a different essence than Gabriel. And when we call them angels, we're saying they have the same office or the same function in heaven, but they don't really have the same essence. They're two different creatures in the same way me and you are different creatures from another animal. Um, now, how does this relate to the earlier principle that I talked about of uh, individuation, especially with the three uh, spheres? Well, if it's not the matter that, that can do it, that can individuate one sphere from another sphere, then it's going to be what's called a hexade. And this is what Dun Scotus said. He said, well, rather than just specify that these angels are, are different creatures, and you know that, that adds so much to the amount of beings there are in the universe, um, why not just say that they have an, a hexade, something to individuate them, uh, where they're all each angels, but they're individuated not by matter, but by like an irreducible sort of thisness. And, uh, I really hope I'm not getting off topic here, but um, if that's the case, then if couldn't one stipulate, for example, that there is an infinite being, uh, that there are two infinite beings, each with their own sort of hexady, and that's what could tell them apart, even hypothetically. Uh, maybe we could say that this is possible, but it's just so unlikely as to be negligible, or do you think that there is a much stronger case that could be put forward against this? I think there has to be something that individuates them. Um, so, I mean, what, what would you do? They say it. it's just their thisness. It, it's just something which is... Yeah, but um, what's the truth maker for it? The hexady. The hexady just works as the truth maker. It's just uh, a bare... It's just uh, something which stipulates that this is uh, one individual as opposed to any other sort of individual. Yeah, but... And I, that's what I'm saying. Which one comes first? 
Uh, so to me, there mm -hmm. has to be some principle or some property that differentiates them. Yeah, each hexady is distinct, but because it's not something we interact with or have an experience in, it's just something which is apprehended by the mind. As soon as you identify an object, you identify it having a hexady. Um, think of it uh, in a similar case as to how in classical logic, as soon as you specify X, then you instantaneously know that X is identical to X. Everything is, in that sense, born with an identity. So that would that would be how it would be done. It would just be as soon as you posit that something is an entity, you would also be positing that something has a hexaity. And yeah. and that, yeah, it's just brute. It just gets to that. It, think of yeah, it like... I don't, I don't have a problem with it. The What I'm simply saying is that in order for it to have a hexaity, there has, oh, to be, to be. A, there has to be a principle to differentiate between like objects. Oh, no. So, right. So I, I'm, I was gathering like two points you were making. One point was if God has a hexaity, then he is ipso facto dependent upon his hexaity to, to distinguish him from any other like being. So it would seem that the hexaity would be prior to God, and in which case uh, you're, you're getting a less than perfect being. I could track that. That actually I think is a good argument. Uh, the other thing you were, but the other impression that I got was you were saying um, there has to be a truth maker for why he has a hexady, but I, I think uh, the the hexady is the truth maker for why it is a particular this. So I yeah, but it's yeah. still it, whether you it's the chicken or the egg, whether or not you think that comes first, it doesn't matter. The end result is that it still results in some type of property that distinguishes it. Because if if everything has exactly all the same properties, then that's the point. I'm saying you can't distinguish them. Well, so oh, so are you making an epistemic point that you can't uh, distinguish it, or are you saying they're the same? I'm both, both. Okay, so it's an ontology. So in the same way, just going to Black's thought experiment, I there's no property I can point to that distinguishes one sphere from another sphere, but there is. But if I posit something like hexaity, like this is just one sphere, like this is just the sphere, then that seems to me uh, sufficient enough where I could say, yeah, my mind is just apprehending three uh, notions of thisness. Whereas I'm just really uh, applying that in a similar scenario uh, with with the, the infinite being or with God. And if that's the case, I don't John, really- I'm a bit confused. I'm a bit confused. Mm -hmm. And I know, because I, I know you're talking about relative identity, right? And I know this is a no, deep topic. No, I'm not. But isn't because isn't this isn't this one of the thought experiments that's used in response to the like the necessity of like the indiscernibility of of identicals, right? So you could actually agree that identity is absolute and still agree with Black on this one because Black is going after the indiscernibility, the identity of indiscernible. But, yeah, but or, you're talking about hexity. So so my 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 idea, and I'm sure I'm, I'm mistaken somehow, but um, just my initial thoughts is that you're talking about hexity and the fact that each sphere hmm. has a particular hexity is. That that's already that already makes them discernible, right? Is 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 that what you were just saying, or am I misunderstanding you? Uh, a difference between the uh, there's a bit of a difference between the two. I'm saying that each because they're because they each have a hexity, they are indiscernible. Not they are indiscernible. They not uh, they are each indiscernible because they have the hexity. Uh, but but doesn't doesn't that like, doesn't the thisness of each mm -hmm. doesn't each object have a different yeah. Business, right? So doesn't that make oh, yeah. them discernible? Oh, 
Yes, so that's the that's another thing. So, and if you actually read uh, Scotus when he develops his theory, he actually says that there are two ways in which one can know about the world. So one is through your senses and through uh, seeing the qualities within the world. So, for example, if I look at my Vatican flag over there, then I can see various qualities that, uh, uh, for example, I can see that it has yellow in one spot, white in another spot. I can point to the fact that it has the qualities of being extended. I can point to a lot of qualities that it has, um, the way it feels, uh, that sort of thing. Those would be uh, parts of their, those would be qualities of a common nature. And SCOTUS would say that they are less than one. And now you're thinking, wait, less than one? It, it's either one, it's either something, or it's nothing. Yeah. And, and that's the thing that Occam actually brought up, uh, funny enough. Uh, but uh, the point is, those things are going to stand first in potential, that is, before they existed, uh, together they existed apart in their various causes. And then when they come and become actual, they also take up a, a particular thisness. Now, something's qualities, those are discernible by the senses. However, in terms of intellectual discernibility, uh, you don't actually pick up um, that from the senses, you pick up that from the intellect. God basically- Yeah, but it seems like that's that's an epistemic point, right? Because yeah, I, 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 I think, the point you're trying to make, if 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 I'm not mistaken, is that uh, the fact that they are indiscernible, mm -hmm. right? There is indiscernibility, kind of makes the idea of like two separate spheres the same as just one sphere, right? Is is that more or less what you're trying to say? Uh, what I'm trying to say is that the qualities that this particular spheres have are not doing the indiscernibility are not uh, meet are not individuating them, but what's individuating them is a non-qualitative property. One, of course, that the senses can't pick up on, but rather is just one posited by the intellect. Yeah, but that, that's, that's an epistemic point, but ontologically, the, each one has a different thisness. So yeah, it, and, that, and those thisness, yeah. Are they that, occupying the same space? Oh, that's, yeah, that's, a, so uh, that's actually something that's usually brought up against this thought experiment. I'm trying to remember his name, but one philosopher pointed out that they could just be the same sphere occupying three particular locations. But uh, Adam something, I think. I think, yeah. I, 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 yeah. think I read that too. But So, uh, um, oh, uh, would you like me to address that point? And, and then yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, okay. So everything does have a, an individual hexade. And, those indiv so, and everything also has certain qualitative properties. Those qualitative properties, um, those help our senses pick out the object. However, in terms of discerning that it is an object, that is something that's up to the intellect. The intellect is the thing that's that's doing that. When you when you create some, when your uh, intellect apprehends that there are three spheres, and then you're just adding on these qualities on top of that, or, or these three things, and then adding qualities on top of that, then that's basically uh, your mind using your sense data, using what qualities you picked up from the world and elaborating on those. But a notion of thisness is just primitive and basic. It's not something that you read. It's not something that you look at the world and see, but rather it's something you reason to based on these sorts of thought experiments. So it's basically posited out of necessity afterwards. Um, if you want to think of an example, think of like identity itself. I uh, when Jake tries to explain identity, he doesn't say the definition of identity is this. Um, what he does is he says, okay, these are the rules of identity. You, then you explain reflexivity, then you explain symmetry, then you explain transitivity. 
Biddy, you explain the certain rules that follow from identity, but identity is primitive, and then you explain how it functions in a particular system of logic. Uh, what I'm saying is that a hexadia, thisness, is just primitive. Um, whenever you say uh, there are three spheres, instantly your mind is just going, there are there are three, and then you consider three thisnesses, and then you just start adding the properties on and on and on. Um, now, uh, would you like me to address the space uh, example, or would you uh, like me to elaborate on anything else? Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, okay, thank you. So from the space example, oh, uh, by the way, uh, my headphones are a little bad. Uh, can one of you talk yeah. just to make sure? Oh, okay. Yeah, I was just, oh, yeah. Okay, that, that, that was my, yeah, sorry. Right, so there are two ways of responding to it. One, you could actually stipulate that this is a unispatial universe as well. So an object can only occupy, so there can only be one object occupying one space at a time, and one space includes the occupation of any other object occupying some other space. So you could stipulate that in the world. Um, that would be one way of going about it. Another, so just in the same way you could stipulate that these spheres are immarkable, you could say that these spheres can only occupy one space at one time. Um, so that's one way to just like jerry-rig uh, the whole thing. and. The second way of explaining it would probably be that, uh, at the very least, somebody has to take on board the idea that uh, one object can multiply, can occupy multiple spaces, and that's a bit of an additional theory. So it might have some costs. Um, but another way of adding to it is this. I suppose that you, so what is it that's discerning? What is it that uh, differentiates one space from another? Well, it's the object. Well, what occupies, what discerns the object from the space? Well, it, it seems that you, it seems that we run into an issue where you're just positing another fact of individuation of occupying a space, but what separates yeah, this I mean, space I, from that space? I, yeah. So I I, I think um, I I I I think I'd, I'd uh, yeah the sp the spatial aspect. I get that it's complicated. It's a very it's a very important point. And uh, and um, I, I could grant I that. Just, I, I, the, the the idea of thisness, I think, I think is just self-evident. So if we give an analogy, like if we take this to the Trinity, for example, um, and I've seen Jake say many times that so one thing the Son knows that the Father doesn't is that I am the Son, and the Father knows that the Son doesn't is that I am the Father. Right mm -hmm. now, now the the label Father. And son is irrelevant here. What it means is just a name, right? I think yeah. it's 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 a qualitative thing, right? Mm -hmm. In the same way, the thisness of each sphere is a qualitative mm -hmm. thing, and so I think that's already a, a a property that necessarily distinguishes them. Once you say there are two spheres, you are right. already making a distinction based on that property of Hexady, based on the fact that each sphere has its own thisness. So right. I, I think that's that's the most obvious flaw I see with, with the thought experiment. All right. So um, all right. So a, a few things. One, it, you know, like in terms of the Trinity, that's a very interesting case. Uh, Scotus actually draws on uh, this sort of thing to distinguish the persons from like everyday contingent objects. He would say that the persons of the Trinity are um, exemplaries of one imminent universal, whereas uh, natures are less than one, hence they cannot be uh, one person, uh, they would just be less than one person, and they would be made full by their having a hexady, whereas uh, that wouldn't be the case for the Trinity. And that's where I, relative identity logic could come in. 
and uh, that's how you can split the difference there. But even putting that to the side, and I'm not even sure that the persons even like mentally interact in, in that propositional sense, but even, again, putting that to the side, um, the reason why we would consider hexades to be a non-qualitative property is because qualitative properties can be picked up by the senses. Um, this is why we can speak of them as being, let's, as being universals, uh, for example, or, uh, or being common. Uh, so that would be the first thing. The second thing is they, they're actually the building blocks for num uh, numeracy. So, for example, being one, two, three, and quantitative properties are not the same thing as qualitative properties. So that would, uh, so that would prevent it from, you know, going into the qualitative branch. The two, the two facts I listed, the fact that it can't be picked up by the senses and the fact that it has to be the building block for, for counting. Like in, uh, if you look at first order classical logic, we count by identity. We see that one, two, and three are identical. We see so that. So how do you? How do you? Sorry, sorry to stop you. And Jake, so if you want to jump in, if you want to jump in, let me know. Uh, it, how do you? How do you w categorize uh, this property of hexady? Right. So you're saying it's not qualitative. Yeah. What is it? What kind of a property is it? Yeah, it's a non-qualitative primitive pro. It's non-qualitative. It's primitive. It's something that's just intuited by our, um, by not our experience, but just by our picking up and categorizing the world in the way God designed our minds. And it's something which is the building block for, uh, for uh, counting, for- But is it, is it, is it, it's not, it's not just an epistemic thing, right? So there's, there's, there's an actual ontology out there. Yeah, there, we, we'd say that maybe to borrow some Kantian terms, we would say that we don't know it in itself. We know it um, as mediated by the various objects. It's something yeah. which is intuited, but it is not something yeah. which yeah, but we there, have but there, there, there is a thing in itself, right? So there is a, yeah. there is this thingness, right? Yeah. Now, what I'm, what, what I'm trying to ask is what mm -hmm. kind of, if, if, if there is an actual like positive ontology to this property, right. what, in what category is it? If apart from the epistemic point that like you know we use it to 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 distinguish between objects, in what category would you place hexady? Yeah, it's basically yeah, it would just be its own category. It would just be uh, sui generis and and primitive, and that's it. It doesn't get any more foundational than that. Uh, it's it's basically brought up as a way of sorting and organizing the world. It's it's posited, but it's only posited through. Uh, for the sake of making sense of our experiences. If there was, for example, a principle of individuation that doesn't require hexity, then, you know, using Occam's principle, you could just, uh, you could just parsimonize that and, and kick it right out. Um, okay, but, so, so regardless yeah. of how we're going to categorize it, maybe Jake can answer this too. So my concern here is if, if each object has its own thisness, right? Right. Uh, that, and, and each object's thisness is... Uh, you know, distinct from every other object's thisness, then uh, ontologically, regardless of whether or not that can be used an, as an epistemic tool to distinguish between right. objects, but ontologically, uh, how is that not a property that makes a true distinction between objects? Oh, it, it is a property that makes a true distinction between objects, but you couldn't, it's not a property, but each individual hexady is is going to be something which um, cannot be is 
something that can't be apprehended in itself. It can only be apprehended by noting it is not everything else. So it's, Black's Black's thought experiment, can it be thought of as something more than just an epistemic concern that, okay, so I have no means of distinguishing between these, these two things, but they are in fact distinguishable yeah. and there are two distinct objects here. Right. Okay, then I, I guess I'm, I'm personally okay with that in the sense that um, yeah, this I, I, is I, I, my I, question yeah. here. I mean, yeah. how do you understand the thisness of two spheres with identical intrinsic properties if they're occupying the same space? I don't, I don't think you can. Oh, That's uh, what my point is. Yeah, uh, and to Hatim, uh, yeah, this is something which I said. If this is going to be an issue, then you'd have to posit that in the world, each object can only occupy one space at a time, and. Um, and it would just be like any of the other ways of no but then how how do you distinguish that like how do you, you distinguish you, between one object that's occupying multiple spaces at the same time and genuinely two objects occupying different spaces that, oh, that's the whole question right so if you so right on the outset if one of the laws is they can only occupy one only one object can occupy one space at one time and no other space then it literally is by any notion of a qualitative um, individual individuation, they are indistinguishable. But that's the point. The yeah, I don't think they are, though. I don't think they are. That's 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 I'm, my point. In in for you to even, and this is the point of difference. And this was also a point of difference in uh, discussion on the Trinity on my channel. To even posit a thisness, right? Yes, mm -hmm. you, you can know it through the mind by just looking at two different objects, even if you cannot verbalize it. But there is a difference between them to, in order to even say that there's a thisness. Now, if I wanted to say, for example, I, Jake, the Muslim mm -hmm. metaphysician, I'm actually two different objects that are the same. How are you going to disprove me? Yeah, I would just go with parsimony. It's just like just as an epistemic point, it's easier just to posit that there is one Muslim metaphysician than a, even though logically possible there. And I know maybe why some couldn't I say that the same about the two balls? They're really just one ball because you can't actually sh show any point of difference. Well, there are three in this one, and they're each in op defined in opposition towards one another. And yeah, the idea that uh, there are three spheres and with all these indiscernible qualities between them in an equilateral form, I, I like if you build it up from the outset, you're not going to at any point of building it up, get any notion of a contradiction. You're not going to get any notion of an impossibility. Like at the end, you might say, well, this is good. It's going to be a problem for our indiscernibility principle, but that's the very thing that's under consideration at the point. Yeah. But then you're, you're doing the same thing. You're just bringing the thought experiment and you're asserting it. And then when I try to give counters or an explanation, why I don't think I need to say that there's actually two objects that are indiscernible, you just reassert the same thing. So oh. it doesn't seem, it seems to me to be based mm -hmm. on an assumption. So in each, so there's one, there's a sort of building up here though. So if you note that at the, very start of it, you can build up the thought experiment without specifying things like one of the objects is movable. Someone could say, well, they're discernible by the very fact that you can move one of them. Then, of course, you build it up again and say they're immovable. And when you build it up, you have basically like uh, the, the sphere thought experiment prime. And then, of course, you could say, ah, different, ah, same, same ball, different spaces. Each, oh, any object in this world can only occupy one space at a time. So of course you're just building it up again from the outset, and basically you're getting the same issue. So 
that's kind of the per so that's really how these sort of thought experiments can work if something isn't just firmly defeating it from the outset then the issue is it can just be built back up from the get-go uh, i'm not opposed for example to saying that indiscernibility indiscernibility that this thought experiment isn't pos is possible but given our indiscernibility principle we could not affirm it if this we cannot really affirm it in the world which we exist. And I'm perfectly fine with that as um, a point of tracking how we discern one object from another, but it's not going to be sufficient when we, when we bring up the counter example. Okay. Let, let me give you an example. Cause I, I think the, the mm. crux of the issue is, is the way I'm saying that the chicken or the egg. So, when we talk about uh, the Trinity, for example, and the doctrine of divine processions, which right. I recently had a discussion between Josh and uh, Dr. Mullins on, on my channel, this yeah. was the point that they were disagreeing about because Josh said, in order for you to even say that one is a father and one is a son and the Holy Spirit, this principle of indiv individuation, it only makes sense with the doctrine of divine processions in order to individuate between the three. But then now what you're saying here really goes against that. And so the, yeah. the, the way that I understood the church fathers, that's one of the things that they were trying to solve is, mm -hmm. and obviously they believe it's grounded in scripture, but whatever, right. it's a whole other thing. One of the motivations of the doctrines mm -hmm. of divine processions is to individuate the persons of the Trinity apart from creation, meaning, in the mm -hmm. Trinity in and of itself, differentiating the persons. And this is what Josh's point was, is that what is the truth maker for mm -hmm. calling one the father and one the son? What's the principle of individuation? Mm -hmm. And he's saying it makes much more sense on the doctrine of divine processions. Mullins was saying, no, 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 you don't need that. And was basically arguing what you're saying, that the individuation is is prior to when we even to start to talk about these things and so i think mm -hmm. those two ideas what you're explaining here and then what josh was explaining mm -hmm. as a catholic which i think you would also want to hold to there's an inconsistency right so a couple of things one i'm not saying this as a way of saying jake is committing a fallacy therefore he's wrong but i, I do want to say that this is what's called what's considered an ad hominem argument and those are valid Ad hominem arguments are valid because you're saying such a person is holding inconsistent beliefs. On the one hand, they're saying they hold the Trinity. On the other hand, they're saying they hold this uh, indiscernity principle isn't true and, and they conflict. Um, so it's possible that if you're an atheist or a pagan, you might make the same point and not be encumbered by the Trinity point. Uh, so let's just uh, sort that out of the way first. It's it, it doesn't well, no, I just want to see. I just want to see. The reason why I'm bringing it up is because it was a recent conversation, and as a Catholic, yeah. I thought that you would take that view. But in order to take that view, you would have to then, in some sense, go against what you're saying here. Right. So I'm not saying that that proves indiscernibility. Right. I'm. I, I can only deal with the person in front right. of me, and I'm some no, checking fair. for consistency. Right. But but Jake, I did say what you are doing is valid. I'm not saying it's invalid. I'm saying it is valid. This is actually a good thing to bring up. My my only point is that we're getting to something a little more specific here, and that's perfectly fine. So in, in terms of like the processions of the Trinity, the reason why we know that there is that uh, in all of eternity, God begets a son and the Holy Spirit proceeds isn't because we discern them 
from their various attributes, all things considered. We know this by dint of revelation. So like if revelation told us, for example, that the father and the son were only hexachaically distinct uh, by some reason, there was no procession difference, then that would be the case. Um, but the only reason we know of the necessity of the Trinity in God isn't because of natural philosophy. It, I could pontificate for, a th for millennia and not come to the conclusion that God is a Trinity. Uh, that is a limit of human reason. And but it, it would be the same as like an atheist saying, well, the Quran is just a natural phenomenon. Any, any person could have created that. Well, you'd think, no, it's, it's pretty remarkable for someone who wasn't formally educated. And um, it, it, and there's not nothing really you could tell that person other than yeah this is something that you couldn't have deduced by by your natural reasoning even if you were somebody who had a formal education um, that's what makes the book so miraculous so that's the first thing that needs to be uh, kept in mind here the second thing that needs to be kept in mind is the procession relationships I would say well. I would say that hexachaically speaking, you could discern them. And in fact, even Dun Scotus said that there was nothing um, he could deduce from natural reasoning that discerned the Father and the Holy Ghost and the Son from one another. Whereas um, he, but he did say that the procession relationships did hold, and that's what distinguishes them by means of natural reasoning, uh, by, uh, sorry, by special revelation and tradition. And yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so I'm saying then, would you or would you not grant Mullins or a Trinitarian who denies the divine processions the ability to be able to discern, discern between the Father and the Son in a way that avoids uh, modalism or some kind of collapse of the persons apart mm -hmm. from the divine processions? If you're willing to grant that, then I think you would be holding a consistent position based on what you're saying now. Oh. If you're not willing to grant that, then I see it as inconsistent. No. All right. No, I'd be willing to grant Mullins that. Uh, based on you know natural theology alone, I couldn't disprove him. My position would be the same thing the Church Fathers told the Eunomians, which is you get your philosophy from Satan. <laughs> so, uh, but but that is not. Yeah, a but I think that yeah. I think that's a. a, a it's, a big pill to swallow because yeah. I think, and I'm happy to be corrected, but as far as my reading of the church fathers, that one of their motivations for positing or understanding it, obviously they believe it's revealed, but their explanation was that it, it gives a way to properly differentiate the persons. Uh, John, I, I mean, honestly, I would, I would love to continue this conversation, but I think much of the audience is probably confused, uh, first of all. And, and second of all, I think that we're, we're quibbling over one particular argument that we used for the necessity of uh, one, uh, one God, one creator. Right. John actually believes that there is one God, uh, even though it's in a Trinitarian sense. But so I do want to just kind of recap that you do accept that the arguments we gave are, are, are sound arguments. You just had one, one issue with one particular argument, and that's what we've been arguing over this whole time. But we've been going on for quite a bit, and we've got like five other people waiting. Right. So, so I think we're going to have to move on, but you can give your final comments. Right. So, yeah, so I will say this. I appreciate all of you guys for your patience, and I know this might seem quibbling considered most of the case was not specified on this indiscernibility principle. 
But I think one of the valuable things of bringing such things up is that this is something that any Muslim might encounter when arguing this point with a non-believer. So it's best that you have this idea from the outset and then and then proceed to think, okay, if someone brings this up, how do we address this? And I would say that, yes, our belief in one God does transcend that, and I am willing to co-sign all the other ones. And the last thing is, I appreciate you guys for tolerating my headache. I know that sometimes it could be a bit much when no, you get to it was really good, man. Stuff, but uh, yeah. Was, uh, no, appreciate you having you on. And if you, if you, I don't know if you have the time, John, but if you can, maybe stay at the back because Hatim wanted to talk to you later, maybe you know after yeah. the show so oh uh, i don't God. know if you, if you have the time for that maybe you can you can uh, stick around uh, but but great great having you on thanks thanks a lot it was a good discussion and uh, looking right. forward to speaking to you again thanks a lot all right take care john okay. take care. all right so we're going to go to sharif next um let me just pull him up here he's been waiting for quite a bit he's uh, the sheriff yeah How you doing? Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Oh, my argument is good. Sound from lovely name and beautiful flag at the back there. <laughs> Sorry, brother, you were saying. Sorry, you're slightly breaking up slightly. Thank you. is this. Cool. Sorry, Sharif, your your reception seems a bit bad. I don't know if you can uh, click off and click back on, see if that works. <laughs> so we've got the principle of discern of indiscernibility. Can you hear me now? Here, what about now? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's good. It's better now. now. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. good now. Ah, okay, okay. So I was saying, like, my argument is my sound a little bit weak compared to the guest that you just had. But anyway, I'm going to say it. So the point is, I have two questions. Thus, when you have like a, a multiple situation where you have more than one God, if one of those uh, gods doesn't possess the uh, one of the necessary attributes, for example, a deity, does that nullify? Like when we talk about divinity, it gets thrown around a lot. Like, does if someone doesn't have a deity, for example, can that nullify such a person? As a divine person, or not, or is aseity not necessary for uh, for so someone to be divine? The second question is that this, the for example, the Christian uh, ideology that the father and the son relationship, and uh, sometimes they try to tell us like it's just a relation, uh, relational uh, situation or something like this. If the father is necessarily dependent on the son, like. It's always the, like they, they make it sound like the, the father had to create the son or something like this. Like he cannot do it otherwise. That's the that know that Allah decided to create us. It wasn't a necessity for Allah to create us. He didn't need to create us. If he wanted, he couldn't have uh, he could have decided not to create us, for example, if I'm right. So if the father necessarily needs to create someone. Like he couldn't have chosen to do otherwise. Doesn't that make the father also dependent? Like on the, on creating someone that he didn't want to create, he couldn't have done otherwise. So those are my two questions and I would like to answer. Yeah, so on the first question, um, 
I think we do think that aseity is uh, necessary. So in order for something to be divine or to be God, um, he has to possess the attribute of aseity, which means he's basically independent. He's not dependent upon anything else. He's completely self-sufficient. And if that's the case, then something that we brought up, which we were talking to John there at the end, if, if the Son and the Spirit are begotten, this is the language that they use, so they wouldn't really say create, but if, if the Son and the Spirit are caused to exist by the Father such that only the Father has the property of aseity and the Son and the Spirit don't, then this seems to be a, some type of inequality between the persons of the Trinity, in which case we would say that, well, only the Father is really truly God or the most perfect being in the sense, and and the Son and the Spirit are not. Um, now, on my channel, I just recently had a debate on this specific issue uh, on the Muslim Metaphysician channel. So if you haven't checked that out, uh, there was actually a debate between two Trinitarian Christians who disagreed about this. Um, but I agree with Dr. Moan's position that aseity is a necessary attribute in order for... Uh, something to be considered God or divine. So that's the first thing. And then um, your, your second question was on uh, dependence or this dependence relationship. So <clears throat> you mentioned creation to be fair to the Christians. I don't think that they would say that the son is created. They would say either that he's begotten or it's some type of causal or grounding relationship between the father and the son but many times they will say that there's an interdependence, that the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Father are all sort of interdependent uh, upon one another. And I think from an Islamic paradigm and our perspective, yeah, that, that is problematic uh, because the begetting of the Son, right? So the, the action of the begetting of the Son it seems like, first of all, it, it is causal, so it's an action that's performed. And the question is, is that action necessary or contingent? On the one hand, if you want to say that it's necessary, then you're right. It, it casts doubt upon God's free will because he's performing an action in which case he could not have chosen not to perform that action. On the other hand, if it's a contingent action, then it makes the sun contingent, in which case he wouldn't be necessary, in which case he wouldn't be God. So I think that is a serious uh, dilemma for the, the Trinitarian Christian to consider. I hope that that answered your two questions. I don't know if the other brothers have any comments that they want to add, or if you have a, a comment or question. Yeah, Jake, I was going to maybe ask you the specific question, which might help uh, the Sharif, mashallah, uh, which is, the reason why Dr. Joshua seems to deny aseity as some sort of essential property is because he doesn't really accept cosmological arguments, does he? He doesn't really accept rational arguments for the nature of the creator. For him, it's all revelation. So he's not going from rational philosophical arguments coming to an independent necessary being and therefore saying, well, a, nece a necessary being is independent by necessity to, in order for it to be God. Is that correct characterization? I, I, I think somewhat. I think he would accept some arguments for God's existence, 
but the ones that probably get to design a, ones, isn't it? Yeah, and the ones that get to a sole independent Ase creator, he would say that you can only conclude to the existence of the father. You would not be able to conclude through these arguments to the existence of the son and the spirit mm. as well, or to all three persons. And he just bites the bullet and he accepts that. I mean, and if you're fine as a Trinitarian, that's fine. But I think part of the issue is not merely that it doesn't get you to the existence of the son and the spirit, but that those same arguments that get you to the one creator, the father, are actually in conflict with the existence of the Son and the Spirit being divine and lacking the certain properties that are necessary for the existence of the Creator or the Father. And I think that's more of the issue that uh, needs to be dealt with. Now, he goes in the discussion with Mullins, there's a whole distinction about why he doesn't think Asaiti is necessary because it's an extrinsic property rather than an intrinsic one and based on a whole set of criteria. Now, I think that's wrong and I plan on putting out a whole video on it, but I don't think it's going to be beneficial here to go into to much detail because it's going to complicate things. So Sharif, uh, our guest Sharif, I don't know if you have any other comeback or question. Has that yeah. helped? But so, thank you, guys. Thank you. I would like to say something before I go. So, I would okay. say, you know, the verse of the Quran where Allah said, uh, that they say about Allah what they do not know. So, yeah. some 100%. of these people, you will see that the kind of statements they make are outside of their scripture. It's yeah. not even within the scripture, you know. They just mm -hmm. formulate some of these views outside there. Whereas we we have the uh, we we are bound by our scripture, so we, mm -hmm. we don't make and it's also rational. So I would just like to point that out. So thank you guys for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it, Sharif. I think right. it's an important point actually because I think uh, a lot of Christians they have this sort of uh, what's it called the pu puzzle approach. There's yeah. a puzzle. And so they're trying to think of this story, this model, uh, this sort of way to sort of reconcile some logical contradictions in order to bring this then model, this puzzle. And so long as it's possible, then it becomes almost uh, doctrinal for them uh, to accept and to believe. So, you know, that's why they have to go outside of scripture in order to try to explain. Hence, Trinity is not found within their scripture. The idea mm -hmm. of the distinction between persons and beings is not found. These are mm -hmm. something extra external to the scripture. Yeah. All right. We're going to go to the next guest here. It's Zaki. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Um, are you there? Yeah. You just have... you guys Wa salam. Yeah. Yes, it's Zaki, brother Jake. <laughs> Mashallah. Okay. So my, my, my contention is actually with the, the cosmological arguments. You, can, you may call it actually... Uh, a, an orthodox question so it goes like this it actually related to the, the sifat of Allah so, some may say it disproves following the, the cosmological arguments and the kalam this proves some of the sifat of Allah or do to will so my question is actually if it does disprove how it does disprove the sifat of Allah and if it does so, if it do so how can you avoid that situation thank you for your time um, I mean, before you leave, I hope you're not going to just leave the stream, but um, 
I, I need, I think, a clarification. Okay. What, what, you, what attributes do you have in mind of a law that specifically the Kalam cosmological argument would negate? That's exactly, I'm a layman here, actually. I just heard it's, it was general. It says it disproves some of the sifats. That's why asking you how it does. <coughs> if yeah, I I, I'm, I'm not aware. Okay. I'm not aware of any um, of Allah's attributes that would be disproven by uh, the Kalam cosmological argument specifically. So I, I, I wish I could. Yeah. yeah, I wish I could steal man it, but I don't, I don't know. Exactly. Jake, uh, Jake, I'm not sure if you want to go into it, but I think it's in reference to perpetual creation. And uh, no, 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 if, I think if, 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 maybe, if, but. Yeah. I, th I think even that's a form of uh, Kalam cosmological argument. I think, uh, Zaki, the issue is this, is that, um, you know, some people, they will argue that uh, when it talks about certain attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, like the hand of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the shin, etc. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. These shouldn't be taken as, uh, they shouldn't be taken, they should be taken quote-unquote literally, yeah? Uh, yeah? And they shouldn't, you shouldn't make ta'wil of them. Exactly. Like this. That's but because this is a... some of the some of the some of the uh, what do you call it the firat actually they do ta'wil they say this is this is the, like you said the hand for example they say yeah, yeah. Power. this means the power it doesn't mean the literal hand yeah, yeah. of God yeah. This, yeah, this is so so yeah. so Zaki the issue is this okay. is even those who take it literally they mm -hmm. take it without modality without kafir. Yeah. Okay. Because they understand if you adopt kafir understanding of the idea of the hand, meaning the howness of how okay. the hand exists, then you are going to make it contingent. You're going to make it part of creation because we think within contingent realities. So, so therefore, so you're, you're even even though we they can do kafir, so we wouldn't fall to contingency. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. 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 So okay. even those who say who are literalist in terms of interpreting these particular uh, ayat of Quran or sifat of Allah, they themselves will argue you can't give it a howness, you can't give it a particular mode of how it exists because all modes of how it would exist would be contingent modes and it's not like creation yeah, so in origin they're still understanding this within the idea of the, the contingency argument and obviously that's within line with the foundational verse of Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says Laysa kamithlihi shay Yeah, there's nothing, no thing yeah. like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala So that, sh that understanding is that there's no modality that we can apply within creation to be like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala So there's no contradiction here, the issue would be is does, is there an, a way to affirm a word without necessarily entailing in a logical problem with the other verse of Quran where there's nothing like unto Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yeah. Some scholars will adopt the position that actually there is a metaphor within the Arabic language about the shin of Allah, that it means difficulty, the hand of Allah, that it means power, the yeah, arsh yeah. of Allah means ilm. Yeah, these are some of the classical scholars of Islam and some of the early of the of the first three generations of the, uh, of the Muslims. Yeah, Imam Bukhari talks about the Arsh of Allah and he quotes Said ibn Jubair as saying this refers to the Ilm of Allah. Yeah, quoting him. Yeah, uh, I'm not saying what what's who's right, who's wrong, or anything like this. I'm just saying that there was okay. legitimate ikhtilaf upon this issue, 
and sometimes we you know we get into too much any delving into these types of issues and start saying this person's mugged it and this person yeah, is yeah, not yeah. and like you know we have to stay away from these types of things so yeah. there is a debate a discussion in terms of the use of the language and whether it can be brought together uh, but even those those who say it's metaphor say well it's not like creation those who say it because they're applying a metaphorical meaning and those who say it's literal are saying that it doesn't have a kefir that we can understand yeah humans created limited beings can understand so allah has a hand but it's not like creation's hand yeah yeah so all of these things still fit within the contingency so we, as you as you are saying we acknowledge that allah has a hand but we don't describe how it is or kefir like you said yeah, we, we can just take an outward meaning, isn't yeah. it? The scholars just try to interpolate yeah, to something like that. Yeah, the early the early Sahaba, the early Salaf, they would just take the outward meaning of these verses. They wouldn't get into the like the depth and yeah. the, the 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 any the you know does it mean that Allah has this hand, that hand, you know? Yeah, exactly. Does it affirm kafir exactly. or not? Because, because many 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 of those verses are just talking about certain things like when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes that he created Adam with these two hands it indicates to us yeah as human beings that Adam is a special creation yeah this is the outward meaning yeah getting into the philosophical discussion about the nature of the yad of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to me is unnecessary philosophy you don't need to go yeah. into that yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. if you yeah, want okay. to say it's a, it's a hand it's literal but it's no kefir then fine does it change the 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 general meaning that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that adam islam is a special creation of adam of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yeah i don't know if uh, the other brothers want to uh mention anything on no i don't have anything else yeah. unless zaki unless you have Something else, but we, we're gonna have to go to the next guest. Okay, brother, thank you for your time. That was very educational. Thank you. Okay, Joseph. All right, Jazakallah. All right, so um, yeah, to me, I'm still a bit confused about how these specific attributes would relate to the Kalam argument. I don't think they're. I don't, I don't think those two discussions are really related. But uh, we're gonna go next to um, Muhammad Rafi. So, Assalamualaikum. All right, so my question is that I think that there's not really any difference between Kalam cosmological argument and contingency argument because as we as we can see in contingency argument, like every, everything that we see is depend, dependent on something else and that thing is dependent on something else. We finally get finally get to a fundamental cause, fundamental necessary, fundamental necessary being on which everything is dependent, right? So this is also in the same way in cos cosmological argument, because in, in that argument also we need to avoid an infinite regression. Otherwise we will uh, have some real problems. So I think in, in both arguments, we are actually need, actually having to avoid this infinite regression uh, in order to get to the fundamental cause. So what's the actual difference between the two? So, uh, so cosmological argument is a family of arguments, uh, Muhammad. It's not just uh, one particular type of argument. So a contingency argument, a design argument, or theological argument, uh, the Kalam cosmological argument, they would all be within the general uh, 
definition of what we'd call a, a cosmological argument. Yeah. Okay. Now, contingency. So a contingency argument, the difference between maybe specifically contingency and Kalam argument is that yes. Kalam tries to address the issue that something began to exist. Yeah. So something that began to exist requires a cause. So it didn't exist and then it existed. The contingency argument is slightly different because it doesn't have to posit a beginning of that thing. All it has to posit is that thing itself requires an explanation outside of itself. Yeah. And that explanation for its existence is something that's either another contingent being or a necessary being. Yeah. And it wouldn't be another contingent being because one of the ways of disproving that is the, the fact of an infinite regress. So it'd have to be some sort of necessary being. There are other ways that you can use from the contingency argument without even talking about uh, an actual infinite or an uh, infinite regress as being impossible. So, but, but, so uh, let me give an example. If you had theoretically a red triangle, yeah, the fact that it's red would indicate to us that it has a dependency upon something to have determined its redness, yeah, and that's what we would understand as the contingency of the thing, mm -hmm. yeah. So even if it, quote-unquote, is eternal, yeah, or has always existed, it will still always need something other than itself to exist. Yeah? Does that make when, sense? Here's, here's the problem. Like, when you say that even if, even if we consider an infinite possibility, a possibility of infinite universe or universe that's been existent for eternity, mm. uh, and it's, it's still we need, we, need, uh, we need to have, a, like, a, have something which... On, on which the universe needs to be dependent on but um, i can i can simply say why why do we need something to for the universe to be dependent on why that why the hell when it's uh, it's been there it's been there for eternity yeah because it doesn't because when you have something when you have something that exists the, there will be an explanation of why it exists now the explanation either is contained within itself or it's going to be contained within something other than itself yeah. Now, as rational human beings, when we see something and we know that the thing that exists has a uh, explanation outside of itself, then you would seek an so it doesn't have an explanation within itself. Then you're going to seek the reason for its existence outside of itself. Yeah. Or the reason for a particular property outside of itself. Yeah. So uh, if you had, like I said, if you had an, a, a triangle then you're not going to ask the question, why does a triangle have three sides? Because it's by definition, yeah? It's an analytic proposition by yeah, definition. Like... But when, it, when it's red, the redness is not defined by the existence of a triangle. So you're going to have to right. ask the question, what, ex what caused or what's the explanation for the redness, yeah? Or what caused it, which is outside of itself, Yeah. But it's not self-contained. Right. So that's the reason. So in essence, there is a principle that we're ad adhering to, which is this idea of the principle of sufficient reason. That things that exist require, or things that are contingent, which is more of a modest claim, require an explanation for why they exist. If you identify that they're contingent, then you identify that there's an explanation behind this particular contingency, which is external to itself. Uh, all right, that makes clear sense. Uh, my next question would be like how would you uh, how would you address the issue of an infinite universe or universe that's been around for eternity without taking into consideration the 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 problem of uh, yeah, the problem of infinity like we we end up 
end up in infinite regression only then we assume that there must be something necessary for the universe to come into existence like like without considering this whole part like suppose universe has been around for eternity and suppose matter matter energy has been around for eternity then yeah. how would you say how would you say without using this like uh, suppose that being around for eternity eternity is possible then how would you actually address this issue of energy and matter energy not being uh, necessary i think uh, jake actually mentioned it earlier with a, a previous question the issue is is this is that all you have to identify is contingency so what do we mean by contingency something that is a possible existence so it could exist could not exist one secondly is it could exist in another way yeah that the properties themselves are not necessary for its for its own uh, or they're not explained by its own existence so all right. these are these are certain things so all you have to do regards to matter and energy is say well could it have been another way is it logically possible that it could have been another way i, I think even abdul mentioned this point about nomological yeah, right. possibility and metaphysical possibility so if it could have been metaphysically possible that it could be another way like the red triangle then by definition it's contingent and then by definition it requires or it's dependent upon something else so i don't even have to identify that the universe began to exist yeah so that's all that's is from that from the argument yeah that's right but uh, when we take into consideration that in uh, that if the matter energy has been around for eternity then yeah. we wouldn't be here like we the universe wouldn't even exist right now then that makes more sense then just saying that it could have been another way it could have existed in a different could could, uh, could planck's constant be another way planck's, planck's constant in relation to energy yeah, as well yeah it could have been could could have been another way as well right so the so the universe could have existed with a different planck's constant yeah that, right. that which is related to energy matter and energy so the fact that you have something that's relate that property of of matter and energy that could have been another way and still matter and energy exist it indicates that matter and energy is not the explanation for planck's constant there's something other than itself yeah other than matter and energy that requires an explanation for planck's constant okay so from from here how how can we reach the argument for necessary being like we are not taking into consideration anything else we taking into this part like it could not have been another way so for that to happen there must be some cause So so so, so, yeah, so, so, yeah. so so Muhammad do you, do you understand that matter and energy are uh, contingent Yeah I understand it they are contingent contingent yeah. means not necessary Yeah so so all you need here you don't even need to concern yourself with infinities it can be an infinite number of contingent things all you need is basically the proposition that contingent things exist so if there is an explanation for that proposition if there is exp- an explanation for why it is then and that explanation is external to the contingent things the plurality of contingent things themselves then by necessity is it is a necessary thing it is not a a contingent thing this is uh, basically logically true because it's an explanation for all contingent things and it cannot itself be contingent right or, or else that's circular in in, in a yeah, vicious right. way it's not it's not really an explanation um what, so is your concern about the properties of this necessary thing how we know something yeah. is necessary uh, yeah my question yeah my question is that uh, without using cos- kalam cosmological argument only by using contingency argument how can we 
arrive at the attributes of god attributes of necessary being uh, i mean i mean the arguments the, each argument is going to there are different many different forms to the arguments right and you're going to take okay, points so from actually everywhere. we have to but, take into account both arguments no it, I, i'm not really concerned with the name of the argument just focus on the ideas so so the contingency argument once if you you you've reached the conclusion that a necessary being exists through for example the path i just the very simplistic uh, you know uh, presentation i just gave you uh, and there are many others so there is a necessary thing right now there's something called stage 2 cosmological arguments that can be a stage 2 kalam cosmological argument a stage 2 yeah, contingency yeah, right. argument and they they come in many different forms so in the stage 2 you concern yourself with the properties of the necessary being and remember what started uh, what 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 brought us to this in investigation in the first place is the contingency of things so we ask what makes us uh, you know inquire about the cause of things that are contingent what makes us look at contingent things and you know attribute external explanations uh, to them and it, one one of the most fundamental uh, uh, reasons is because these contingent things have arbitrary properties they are one way rather than another so if something has a particular color shape size we always assume epistemically that there is an explanation for why something is the way it is right so right now here you have a what what we call like it's a modal scope of logical possibilities things could have been many different ways and you're going to keep asking Uh, you know why it is the way it is unless you reach to a foundation where these questions stop now at what point do they stop i think they stop at the point where you reach a necessary being that grounds all logical possibilities it's not just something that's can't, arbitrary can't we just say that can't, can't we just say that these things all these contingent beings have been this way uh, by a random chance like there's a random chance for them to be this particular way You can say that but then good luck because you're going to that's a slippery slope to skepticism. So anything could be the case. You could be a brain in a vat right now, you know. All your experiences can be illusory and 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 we just don't have any knowledge. But then Muhammad for- if you yeah, sorry, I was going to say Muhammad if you adopt that position, you might as well just throw all uh, methodological approaches to thinking and knowing things in the bin. Because if if it's literally no, actually, anything, actually, actually, I've been faced by some atheists in the past, so this question keep uh, coming to my mind. The, the very question itself assumes that you can't say yes. It's a self-defeating question. I'll tell you why. It's because yeah, you're asking, right. okay. can we do this? And you're looking for an answer that justifies the position that you can do it. So there is a reason for why you can do it. But if you can just, you know, have uh, no uh, reason. Accept Uh, yeah, yeah. Accept things with absolutely no reason, and just drop uh, uh, the principle of sufficient reason. Then you don't even need to ask that question. But the reason you're asking yeah. that question is because you know that things must have reasons, right? So, so the point is, when you arrive at the necessary being that grounds all logical possibilities, and this is where we talk about omnipotence, because there's no asking. What is the causal limitation of God? Why can He cause this thing rather than that? For example, if you posit a necessary being that can only create red rocks, well, that's a bit weird. I mean, why why can it only create red rocks? That seems like a very arbitrary yeah, right. limitation. It seems like a contingency, and that's where omnipotence comes into the picture. God can actualize all logically possible things. Mm-hmm. You know, wh- whatever it is you mean by that, it's there's no more asking. 
why does this being have this arbitrary limitation in his causal, causal capacity? That question is gone. It's out the window. So that, that, that's, that's basically what you need to arrive at, the necessary being that grounds all logical possibilities. And, and a necessary being basically that doesn't have arbitrary limitations. And that's what we were talking about earlier. That leads to not just uh, you know, this basic conception, but also to monotheism and yeah, the idea absolutely. of one God. Yeah. One God as well. So, Muhammad, the point being is that when atheists get to that position where they turn around and say, well, you know, can it not just be random? Can contingent things just not have no explanation or at least one contingent? They've lost the argument. Wallahi, they've lost the argument. And now I think that what they're doing is they're really trying to scratch around for something, uh, you know, some sort of reason not to believe. Because the consistency of the argument leads you to one necessary being. That's the cons being cons rationally consistent leads you to this yeah. uh, with the least number of maybe metaphysical assumptions that you need to make. But with what they're doing is that they're getting to a they're using principle of sufficient reason. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that contingent things require an explanation up to a point. And then they're saying, right, I'm just going to throw it away, because if I continue to adhere to it, it will lead me to a God. It will lead me to a creator. And so then they, they leave it. And I think. You know, it's always difficult. It's always frustrating. But yeah, whenever, some, whenever I, I don't know, Mohammed, if you've seen our other streams, we've addressed a lot of these types of arguments. And I think one of the key discussions we had, which was similar to this, was one with Aaron Ra. Uh, and yeah, I actually the watched, this, watched the video a few times. I actually liked it so much. Yeah, yeah. Alhamdulillah. So I think the key issue is this: is that, okay? Do you accept magic? If you don't accept magic, then you accept that there's explanation by magic. Let's be really clear: by magic. What we mean specifically is that some event can occur and it has no explanation, whether that's naturalistic or otherwise. Yeah, no explanation for its existence. If you don't accept that, yeah, that that can be a possibility, then you're now forced into a position to accept a, a, a okay, basically right. a necessary being. Yeah. But just that answers, okay, Mohammed, that answer all can... my question. There's one more question. Uh, you can actually answer it like for one minute. Uh, a, a few days ago, I actually came across a question on your channel. It was like a guy saying, before the existence of the universe, God was sitting idle. God was not doing anything. It hit me very hard. Like I was not able to think of anything. So I know this is, this is the question like we cannot ever get answered to. But what what do you think about this? About what? God like being idle? Of God. Before, yeah, before the existence of the universe. Yeah. My, the universe. my answer is so what? Yeah, actually, right. So, but God, why did God, God not, start to QS universe? God not creating from eternity past. Why would that be a negative thing? Yeah, right. It wouldn't be any problem. There's yeah. no problem. So, yeah, just because you're trying to create a mental image or something, it's something you yeah. can't conceive of these things. So you just, that's you know, don't. Yeah. You're trying to think of like a person who's doing nothing, for example. I mean, that's so. So it's just. You know, it, maybe it's true, it's logically necessary, possibly, but it's it's not something that you can conceive of. Or So I think it's just the mental images that we create of these things that, that just... And uh, you know what? Some people, uh, some, atheists, some, some atheists posted that uh, the fact that uh, God created the universe is, is that he's not self-sufficient. That's the only reason he created the universe. No, no. You can, you can do things that you don't need to do. You know, Mohammed, the problem is, is that they're analogizing 
between created things and how human beings desire certain things and do certain things because we, we have a need. And then they're trying to analogize that with the creator, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why the creator? Well, if we do something because of a desire or a need, then therefore God does something for a desire and therefore a need, and therefore God is not uh, independent. It's, it's, there's too many metaphysical commitments and assumptions that he has to make in order to arrive at that, which are unjustifiable. Yeah? Whereas what we're trying to do is we're just trying to observe the universe and the reality and come to a conclusion about the necessary being and then the nature of the necessary being in terms of the you know understanding the very essence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we're saying we can't know these things. In the same way, like for example, yes, if you posit a beginning of creation, then what does it mean that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala existed without created creation? Well, we don't know, isn't it? We just that's beyond our sense capacity. You know, um, I don't think that you need to have any uh, a leap of faith in regards to the mm -hmm. fundamentals yes. of the belief of Islam, belief in one creator. I think they are rationally uh, justifiable. But where you have to then suspend your rationality is on some of these types of questions. Not because yani, they're irrational or illogical, but simply we have limits to our own rationality. And so therefore we just follow what the text says, what the Quran and Sunnah says. And we, you know, on these particular issues, as long as there's no contradictions, which we obviously there are no contra real contradictions within the Quran and Sunnah anyway. Certainly within, uh, so as a result, you know, uh, these things which we cannot fathom within our mind because it's limited and we can only sense contingent things in terms of conceptualize. Therefore, we can't uh, conceptualize in terms of understanding modalities. Obviously, we can understand that there is a creator, you know, come to that. So therefore, we can't yani, uh, go in and delve into these types of issues. And most of the skepticism to belief of a creator is where people are incorrect in the, the use of the mind. Yeah, mm. Like I said at the beginning, some people, they have this mentality that of this sky daddy, Yeah, this person who lives in the sky. Yeah, uh, as a this is what people, uh, Muslims believe of when they think of a creator, you know, for Christians, it's a white man on a cloud. For Muslims, it's something, you know, non-white, Asian, whatever, Arab. This is completely incorrect in terms of conceptualization. And that's what they're trying to refute. Yeah. So thank you for answering my question and thank you for having me on the show. No problem. Actually, I appreciate your Take help. Take care. Take care, Muhammad. Yeah, thank you. Assalamualaikum. We're, by the way, we're half an hour before kickoff. Yeah, so... um. Uh, we need to speed up a bit. Yeah, we've got we've got four people waiting. I don't know if we're gonna get to all of them, but uh, we'll see. Let's bring the next guest, which I don't know how this is gonna go, but we'll see. I think this is Terry because it says your favorite heretic, but I could be wrong. Oh, I was right. See, how you doing, Master? <laughs> how you doing, Jake, man? I I'm good. So. Um, uh -huh. Before, before we go, I'd, I'd like to thank uh, Jesus Christ for the opportunity of engaging with you, especially on the issue of the incarnation, which I'm not going to talk about too much today. Uh, but uh, you gave me the opportunity to um, understand uh, the historical uh, background of what the, the Trinity entails. So, so why are you thank thanking you. Jesus? Why don't you thank Jake? Uh, because he allowed... Beings. No, well, <laughs> we're gonna get to that in this. We're gonna get to that in a second. But I, I thank Jesus because he planned this. So uh, he allowed me to uh, understand that I'm in 
in between two uh, opposing forces, Muslims and the so-called Christian uh, traditions that, because uh, uh, I wasn't aware of what the Trinity entails, now I do, mm. and understand uh, the war I'm engaged in. So thank you for that. And also I like to- uh, so uh, about, about, the, about the topic of the stream. I'm gonna get to it. I'm gonna get, yeah. I'm gonna get to it. I, I did, uh, also, I wanted to also uh, thank you for correcting me about Josh, I was wrong about that. I watched the, the Trinity uh, debate, the whole debate, but the other debate, I only spent an hour where he was beginning to explain. So you're right about that. So now, according to the uh, topic, uh, the discussion, I wanted to engage on the um, the attribute of a city because you're claiming, uh, I believe that the, um, uh, the son is necessary uh, in order for the father to be the father. So in light of that, uh, we believe that Jesus is the power by whom uh, the Father is able to create, to enter creation, and to uh, interact with creation, which makes our God greater than yours, because uh, I would need to understand how your uh, your God was able to create from uh, uh, outside of eternity to engage with his creation. Because uh, if you're going to say that he did not enter creation, that would mean that... Um, uh, basically, um, how would you able, uh, be able to say that uh, creation is not eternal? And also to judge uh, men, because we believe Jesus is the light of man, the means by which we are sustained. So he can judge us because he shines on the good and the bad, given all the opportunity to uh, uh, observe his will or to walk according to his will. So by that, he's able to judge the yeah. world with Sorry, righteousness really quickly. and justice. Yeah, really quickly, because I know the brothers will want to come into this. All yeah. of those points that you mentioned, are they are they derived from uh, what we call natural theology, or are they just derived from scripture? Uh, so they're just scriptural. You just hold on to this position because it's scripture, and and all yeah. the logical, but uh, uh, it derives uh, from logic. From so you, what do you mean by derives? What do you uh, mean by derives from logic? Uh, everything that is consistent with scripture, uh, with scripture, because I believe we, uh, there are certain things that we can ascertain as it relates to our our reality through scripture. Uh, it says Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine that what belongs to God belongs to God, and what belongs to, what has been revealed to man belongs to us. So I believe certain things can uh, be ascertained through uh, logic as long as we have the parameters that are set clearly set uh, set okay. in scripture. But so all like of you, what you said, but all of what you yeah. said just then, in terms of yeah. your particular propositional claims, none of that is that's none of that's arrived at without scripture. You need scripture in order to arrive at that. One. Amen. Secondly, is that what you're probably wanting to say also is that what the scripture is saying does it have to be consistent with logic? Uh, like I just answered that Deuteronomy 29, 29, certain things, uh, what belongs to God belongs to God and what has been revealed to us has been, we can ascertain logically the things that has been revealed to us. So now my question to you is, okay, uh, but what, yeah, yeah, but what I'm saying is this is that if the scripture reveals, if somebody claims a scripture, I'm not talking about Christianity or anything or okay. Islam, I'm just saying something, some, somebody claims that this is from God and you see a very clear contradiction in it that's logically impossible to reconcile you can't logically possibly reconcile that can you say that, that scripture is uh negation is that, is that a way of negating a claim that this is revelation okay i, I like the way you said that uh there's certain things that are, are outside of logics uh for example uh miracles 
that is outside of logic and the eternal realm that is also outside of logic but as far as aseity goes or uh, assay, saying that God needs to be a Satan in order for him to be divine, I'm trying to engage logically with you. I want you to explain to me why does a necessary uh, person who is projected from the Father yeah. uh, somehow but, makes Terry, the Father less no, divine? No, but Terry, Terry, uh, I just want to just as a foundational point, if somebody claims this is from God, yes, whatever that point is, we're not, I'm not talking about the particular whatever? point. I'm not okay. talking about the particular point. I'm saying you and everybody on the planet identifies that this is a barefaced contradiction. Would that be sufficient to negate that person's claim that he's, uh, he's got a revelation? If it's applicable to the parameters of logic, again, miracles or the eternal realm is not something you can what, put in Whatever it is, whatever it is. Not, that's not saying, possible. So, it's, not so, you, so if you can demonstrate that a particular belief that's been defined by the particular religion is logically impossible you can negate that that's what you agree with whatever is uh, uh confined to logic yes right i don't know if jake wants i just wanted to get that out <laughs> i think i think i was clear in the, in the very beginning i yeah i, I, I mean terry honestly the the stream is about why one god do you believe that's, what, that's one... what i did yeah but do you believe there's one god Exactly, and, and I, I brought you the the aseity of uh, the the Father or God uh, as being my objection. I wanted to know. I, I want to know why does a necessary necessary Son of God uh, somehow and uh, and using the the parameters of logic, why does why does that make the Father uh, less divine? That that is the, the argument you were uh, proposing from the very beginning. So I want to put, uh, to put no, that. No, no, I, I said it differently. I said that. Okay, go ahead. I said that if the Father possesses a seity and the Son and the Spirit don't, then the Son and the Spirit are less divine than the Father. Explain I don't know. That. I, I don't Explain know if you. Well, do you believe that? Do you believe that? No, because uh, we believe if that's the case, then you made the Father dependent on the Son. Because I said from the very beginning, the Son of God is the power by whom that He can enter creation. Psalms 113 verse 6 says he is the humility of God. So he can enter creation unlike your God. Your God is powerless to enter creation. Our God can actually enter no, creation but, and interact with creation. Yeah, but uh, Terry, you're, 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 you're gish galloping. I I'm, I'm, want to understand your point of view because yes. the traditional Christian view based on a Nicene Creed is that the son is eternally begotten of the father. Amen. And they, under, they understand that to mean that the the son comes from the father not that the father comes from the son i agree and there's okay but they say that literally the son is caused to exist by the father although it's eternal he still is causally dependent on the father in the way that the father is not they say that only the father's uncaused and the Son and the Spirit are caused because they proceed from the Father. Now, I want to know if you agree with that or not. I, I, cause to exist is something I would not uh, say. I would say he, he was brought forth from eternity. But again, um, the reason why I don't see uh, a problem with that is because uh, the Son of God is the means by which the Father is able to create, enter creation, and engage with creation. So therefore, if you want to use the word dependent, I would use interdependent. So as, like I told you, the sun analogy, which is still infallible, uh, at the point of or origin, sun, radiance, and heat, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. 
Now, the radiance is the humility. The Son of God is the humility by which we, he, can, he can create and engage with cre uh, creation, something your God is limited in. And there's many contradictions yeah. as it relates to that. So I would like you to engage with that. Uh, yeah. I mean, part of the problem is, is that what you're bringing up is not directly related to the stream. Second thing is that you're bringing up the sun analogy. It was already I, I actually gave you uh, the opportunity because I put a comment on one of my streams when I had a Christian uh, guest on. And I put that on, and he disagreed with you. He explained I know, why. I, I he explained I why. It. He explained why it was wrong. Now, if in order for me to debunk that, and now play the video for everybody for them to see what was said, oh, you can repeat. You can we, repeat. We, we would be wasting too much time. But I'm no, just no, saying, could, uh, all these issues, you're not bringing in a new issue to discuss. That's what I'm saying. Other than now, we're talking about aseity, right? Yeah. And what what aseity means is it means complete independence and self-sufficiency. In this case, the, the son is dependent upon the father in a way that the father is not dependent upon the son so, because so the, son, the, son, the, the son proceeds forth from the father. The way that the church fathers explained it sometimes is almost like God the father is a fountainhead and the water is like eternally flowing from the fountainhead. Now, my, my point to you is, is it still results in the son being and the spirit also being dependent upon the father in a way that the father is not because they come from him, not the other way around. I, I'm not going to refer to uh, church councils. Uh, what I will refer you to is scripture that says that they're interdependent. Uh, the Do father, you have, if you're gonna make, uh, can yeah. I just finish a statement? Uh, if you're going to make a dependency uh, argument, I could reverse the argument and say that without the son, the father cannot enter creation without the son. Uh, uh, without the father, the son, uh, without the son, I'm sorry, the father is not able to interact with creation. So you're making why, why, why couldn't the father interact because with he's creation? Because he's a consumer in fire and he cannot contain his power. So the son is no, the one who I hold him. Yeah, but that's, that's your assumption, though. That's your no, 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 that's scripture. That's scripture. It's, sorry. I, I yeah, but, but you're not, what? but that's, there's no rational argument for it. It's just an assumption. It's an assertion based, based on scripture. On scripture. Yeah, it's based an assertion based on scripture. So if I don't buy, if I don't buy, if I don't buy into your scripture, you have no way to actually give me a rational argument for your claim. It's just an assertion. Uh, I first of all, um, I'm, I gave this an analogy, and you said that I, I heard the argument. You can summarize it and explain to me how uh, there is limitations on analogies. But you could, I, I could use this analogy to explain the container of power. Uh, okay, that's what I want to do, Terry. I'm just finalize my statement because you understand my point. The sun is a consuming fire. The father, yeah, we heard as expected, and, and the radiance is the containing of that power, that, but it doesn't consume us. So yeah, I'm Terry. using the, the analogy and ex, and expressing it in our yeah, but I'm, I'm saying and, and I'm, the reason why I'm cutting you off, Terry, because we ahead. don't have that much time. And no people, people, everybody watching knows you. They've already seen my streams. They know your son and that's, why, that's why I'm that's why I'm I'm not to cut you off to be rude, but in the interest of time, because people already know. And if they don't know, then they can go watch it there on their own time. The point no is, I want to ask you one question and we can go discuss ahead. this one specific issue. And then we're going to move on to the next guest. No problem. Since you no want to base your understanding on scripture do you have any scripture that explicitly states that the son is eternally begotten from the father eternally begotten by the, from the father 
Yeah, because you said you agreed with that. Uh, you could go to John 118. Uh, uh, no one has seen God. Uh, or you could go John 118 in comparison with uh, Proverbs 8.23. So you know, John 118 says no one has seen God the Father, Theon, except the only begotten son who is in the bosom, the essence of the Father. He has revealed them. And you compare that to uh, Proverbs 8.23 that says the wisdom who is uh, Jesus Christ as per 1 Corinthians 1.24. It says from eternity and from condemn both terms used for the father saying that he's from eternity so that's good i don't think you want to debate me on scripture you should debate me on the philosophy and the and the, and the logical no, because I, I, I don't think either one of those passages actually say that the son is eternally begotten of the father so let's let's take a look at them which what one is do you wanna, which oh, oh, one sorry. which one no, do you want to deal with first john 118 or proverbs let's 8? go let's go to proverbs 8 uh, what is what are the okay words proverbs 8 proverbs? is a big is a big chapter do you have a specific reference i'm gonna, I'm gonna go, go to it I, i'm gonna go to verse 23 24 and 25 can you explain to me what kadem and olam means sorry words? can you explain to me what uh, kadem and olam eternal olam? everlasting hardened. Yeah. okay i was asking jake because jake said it, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean uh begotten so i wanted to know why would no, you make an assessment no, no, no. You, Sheriff, you seem to know, but why would you make an assessment without even knowing what the terms Olam and Kadem means? You made an assessment. I, I, I do, because I've actually studied this. I know that this is one of the most. So you uh, should know quoted. the verse. I, so exactly, you should know the exactly, exactly, exactly. Let's go to I do. it. I do. Let's go so to you, it. You can go to it and you can show me where you think that it actually says eternally begotten. Uh, you could go to verse 23 and it says, I was uh, uh, in, in uh, verse 22, and the Lord. And you could say formed in the Hebrew, in one of the meanings, formed me from the beginning of his way. From Olam, I was set up from Kadem, everlasting, from the beginning. So right there, and if you can continue before verse 25, before the, the mountains were settled, before the hills were, was brought forth, uh, before the hills, I was brought forth. Again, given birth, the word in Hebrew, to give birth. Same thing with John 1, 18. I, I don't know what you're trying to debate me on scripture. I think you should stick to what you know best, philosophy and logic. Well, No, logic, no, I don't think logic. it says anywhere here that it was eternally begotten. I just still don't see it. <laughs> Where does it say that? Uh, to, bring, to bring forth is not uh, begotten for you? Yes, it is. But I don't think that's what it actually states. So because can you what, read what, it, what, verse 25? What's that? Can you read verse 25? I think I, I read 23, 22, yeah, 20, 20, 25. says, before the mountains had been shaped, before yes. the hills, I was brought forth. I yes. was brought forth. Okay, right. so before time, before time, he was brought forth. That's eternity. Before time and space was created, I, don't, it, I was I brought never, forth. It never says that. Oh, well, that's to be fair, I was using the Arabic. 22 and 23, buddy. <laughs> I told you, from Kadem and Olam, who's only used, those two terms is only used for Yahweh the Father, the eternal Father. And You're again, saying verse 23? I mean 22? 22, 22, and 23, which is kind right. of, it's very interesting that you, okay, so verse 22, the Lord formed me in the beginning of his ways. Before the, his work of ever, uh, from uh, old Kadem, I was set up from Olam, everlasting, eternal. Two terms used only for Yahweh. Can you please? I, again, I don't know why you're trying to debate this because this is a some a debate I would have with somebody else, a, a Orthodox Jew or somebody like that. But what does that have to do with uh, with the, the argument I was presenting, saying that the, the son? What's that? Uh, what does that have to do with the argument? Me presenting that uh, the father, uh, the 
the son, uh, the father is uh, the son is necessary in order for him to create, to enter creation, and to interact with creation, which is also established in Proverbs eight twenty three, uh, Proverbs eight. Uh, well, because I asked you because you wanted to say that all of your stuff is going to be based on Scripture, and you agreed with eternally begotten. That's why we went to Scripture to see where eternally begotten is, and then you mentioned these verses. So I don't know why you would be confused about why. Okay, but why no, I'm no. bringing it up? Yeah, no, it can also be understood as long ages ago. I yeah, was yeah, appointed I, I, in I the I totally past. understand that individually. Individually, yeah. I, I, I made my point that ago, both terms. I was set up. Yeah, I so agree, it doesn't agree, necessitate I everlasting. I, I I made my point clear. Yeah, and and, and everybody knows that everybody knows that wisdom in, in Proverbs is a personification. No, so not according to scripture. First, uh, first Corinthians one twenty four. First it's Corinthians one twenty four. No, 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 no. You can't you can't do that, my friend, because it, you're gonna script? you're you're gonna try to use the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament. Okay, it doesn't so, work like that. Okay, no problem. But you want to go to church fathers, but you don't want to go to Paul. No, Paul actually, the, the church, church fathers. fathers. This is one of the most quoted things that they actually bring up. Okay, so you appeal to church and, fathers and, for certain things, and then you don't appeal to them for certain things. That's no, I, I, but I just I'm, like to, I'm not. I'm not appealing to them. I'm agreeing that they bring them up, but it's actually a problem because if even if you look into the uh, Septuagint, it actually has the word created. Uh, I, I don't use a Septuagint for the the Book of Proverbs for the first five books. Yes, but not not for the Book of Proverbs. Uh, Sh Sharif, I, I just want to respond to Sharif. Sharif, when both terms Kadem and Olam is used for one person. It's only the only other example is Yahweh, the eternal person. So I don't want you to isolate Kadem for what and and uh, uh, Olam. Yeah, I'm but using Terry, both Terry, the problem is, is this: is that if I was to speak somebody yeah, I don't from a different no religion, if I was speak to somebody from a different religion and he said that Ganesh or whatever, uh, Odin, yeah, Odin is uh, eternally begotten or eternally existent as well, or that. Thor was eternally existent. I would just simply completely dismiss it and say that's irrational. I'm sorry? I would just simply say that's irrational. It's illogical. Irrational on the basis of what? Uh, on the basis of what? On two necessary beings which are eternal. Why would that be rational? Why is it? Why is it? Why is this? Why are you saying it's not irrational for somebody to why? Turn why? And why say Thor be? and Odin are both eternal gods? Terry, to bring it back to the topic of the discussion, so it seems like you're saying that the son is necessary. Basically, a second person is necessary in order for the for the, for God to enter creation. Why is that necessary? Because uh, he humbles himself and he enters time and space. He pierces rationally speaking. So somebody who believes in a unipersonal God, let's say that yes. person believes that God can enter creation, he has an advantage over you because he didn't posit an extra unnecessary entity to solve the problem that you actually think is a problem. Well, well, so so why do I need to deposit an extra entity? Why can't I just say, if I share your concern, why couldn't I just say that God enters creation? Good point. Good point, and I'm gonna have to let you guys go soon, Abdul. So that would mean your eternal God came in outside of uh, his eternal realm and came in time and space. You have to explain to me uh, the, uh, the tangible uh, uh, effects of that, and where does it, where is that established in Quran? But you you believe that? No, no, no. You believe that? Is the sun is the sun eternal? Is I don't believe that. I'm giving. I'm not. I'm. 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 This is for the sake of argument. Okay. I'm saying. So right now, you believe that the sun is eternal. And yes. intangible and timeless, right? Yes. And he entered yes. creation. 
Why yes. couldn't the father do the same thing without the son? Be because uh, the son, I, I said it from the very beginning. I guess you guys are not listening. I said he contains the power. He contains it. Terry, I can tell you, hey, listen, what you're saying is wrong because the Quran says otherwise. And we shouldn't have a discussion in the first place. I don't believe in your scripture. You need to come to the common ground uh, of rationality and logic that we agree on, the, the language we use to reason. So right now I'm telling you that the person who believes in a unipersonal God has an advantage over you because he's not positing an extra entity. And he still can say that, for example, the father can take on human flesh and enter creation. What's wrong with uh, that? But, uh, but, but you're, you're basing this on something that doesn't exist. You, you don't have a religion that says that. That's not He's the, not the, the arguing point. that. That's not the He's point. Not. The point yeah, is you're right now you're trying you're, you're trying to make a case for the necessity of the sun in order for something to happen. I'm saying exactly. it isn't necessary. The same thing could happen with a unipersonal god. So your argument fails. It's like it doesn't have to be if God will ever enter creation, it doesn't have to be in the form of a multipersonal god. A unipersonal god can do that just as well. So your okay. argument so, completely falls apart. But here's the problem: uh, Does that you uh, that uh, does that God God that hypothetically you just invented uh, does he uh, contain his power to do it? What do you mean contain his power? I don't understand. Contain his power because I, I said uh, my God actually the Son of God humbles himself and contains that power. So he, why, that power doesn't overwhelm us. Does why, your why, God, why, God doesn't? Or your imaginary yeah, yeah, your yeah, imaginary yeah. God? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whatever the Son can do. This imaginary God can do. I mean, I don't see the problem with it. So okay, your so, argument uh, fails. So, 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 so basically, so is, it isn't necessary. And and one second, one second. So basically, on a on a unipersonal, purely monotheistic Islamic conception of God, assuming for the sake of assuming one second, one second, assuming for Islam. the sake of argument, assuming for the sake of argument that the problem you're putting forward is actually a problem, it isn't a problem for. A, a, a unipersonal God at all. It's a problem for you to say that it necessitates a second person. No problem. No problem. That's the imaginary God you just invented. No, no, not no, the no. God there are, there are, there are interpretations. Go. There are schools of thought within Islam that believe that Allah literally descends. Literally descends. There's a hadith. There are schools of thought within Islam that believe that Allah literally descends into the... Uh, and contains you know, his power? The, into, and contains? The and contains? I, that, and contains that, I, don't see that, I don't see that Sorry. as a logical necessity. You'll have to make yeah. a case for that too. So you keep adding layers onto oh, your eternal, theory. Eternal back to enter space? No, no, terms, Terry, yeah, Terry, 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 no, Terry, no, 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 no,
uh, within creation. Now, where his argument also fails is that he could have the same position within a modalistic view of Christianity. Yeah. So God, there is one God and God creates a mode that he controls uh, uh, upon upon the earth. Or there's a third way, which is the Islamic way, which is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives uh, revelation to prophets and prophets then disseminate it. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is able to control all of the affairs within the universe, including the any uh, the, the laws of the universe and the properties of the universe and the guidance of human beings by simply through Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's power without having to become part of creation. Yeah, this yeah, is and there's there, there's there's this problem. That. There's this problem of you <laughs> no, know, so hey, you have to move on because we gotta get these last Two guys yeah, just, just give me 10 se 20 seconds. There's this problem of, of, you know, what he says, and a lot of times people say this, your God can't do X and my God can. And a lot of time this action they're, they're positing that their God can do is something that is problematic. So it's, it's almost as if you're saying your God can't disable himself. Therefore, my God is greater. Or, for example, your God can't vanish from existence. That's something else my God can do and your, yeah, yeah. your God can. And this, again, I mean, Christians don't believe this. Christians regard that God's omnipotence and God's creative acts are tied into what befits his majesty and his, his, his nature. But then um, people who don't take these philosophical discussions seri seriously fall into all these, all these problems. Sorry, Jake, you can go on with the next caller. Should we? Yeah. Uh, are we we will give this guy two minutes, and he'll be the last caller because we're gonna. I think so. There's a guy I've been seeing since since we started. El there, there's two people. Let's. Oh, okay, come quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, El Ru. Are you there? Assalamualaikum. Waalaikum assalam. Uh, yeah. So my question is regarding uh, necessity or necessity being. Well, after we get to the part of necessity being. What else could we know from Allah out of revelation? So, um, so creation, we know that He creates, he's, we call Him a creator because of the we are existing. Is that can we say that from that beginning? But what else outside of revelation? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, we can we can know that He's intelligent, meaning that He has knowledge, that He has uh power. Mm -hmm. uh, we can know several of His attributes, uh, just from these cosmological arguments. Okay, but so would that also be a sort of Gator Gator case? Like we have, um, what do you call it? Uh, we we don't have the direct knowledge, but we we can ascertain these things. I guess we can ascertain through observation of creation certain yeah. things about uh, the the necessity of a creator, but beyond uh, some of the basic understanding of of the creator, but the. Uh, you know, we need revelation. But the key issue mm. is this, and this is the thing about with, uh, I assume you're, you're Muslim, al yeah. Mm -hmm, yeah. Yeah, alhamdulillah. So I think with regards to the issue of an atheist, an atheist wants to deny all properties, all possible, uh, you know, aspects of a creator or a necessary being. They want to deny everything with regards to this. And so even if they want to arrive at a deistic, uh, they claim we can only arrive at a deistic conception of a creator, and then we need revelation further to complete the picture for us that's fine because they're no longer yeah. atheists regards yeah, to that. and they should they should stop talking about being atheists and that's why mm -hmm. with regards to when we talk to atheists we don't necessarily jump to uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the Quran says 
you know, this particular verse or that particular verse. What we want to show is first and foremost, a necessary being means yeah. something that has to be eternal. Doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily mean that it has a will or these sorts of things. We want to establish that. Once they've established that, then you can then establish that this necessary being created and also created with intentionality means had the ability to know certain things and they obviously uh, had the uh, yeah desire to not desire the will to create and if it has will to create then it knows that it's creating and if it knows that it's creating it has power to create that thing and so you've you've ascertained certain fundamental uh, aspects uh, so, uh, attributes the uh, will the uh, all powerful because it can't just be partially powerful because then you've got a contingent being so it has to be all powerful all possible can do all possible logical things and also has to have knowledge of all possible logical things as well so you're coming to certain conclusions and that's really it then after that we can then understand that actually there is good reasons of why we'd seek a revelation uh, and therefore yeah. we would look for uh, scripture in order to tell us what to do what what our creator wants from us etc which we can't come directly through our mind we need guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for this yeah that's uh that sounds good um yeah thank you for, for the answer um i just have a quick request it's just real quick um is there any way we can arrange uh like conversation between you guys and other youtubers and streamers because i love to see that if you have an impact yeah, yeah. Send us an email you can send us an email if you have any um I don't know if you want to. If don't know if you, uh, Jake and Abdul, you want to announce who we're having next week. We could do that. We could do that. Uh, yeah, go so... for it. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> so please, uh, for the audience and everybody there, don't you know blame us too much. But obviously, there has been one particular Murtad uh, apostate. He called himself Murtad, uh, who has been doing uh, videos against, uh, well, talking to about some of the brothers, Jake in particular, and Yusuf. And so we've got apostate prophet coming on next uh, next Sunday, isn't it? Uh, the eighteenth, isn't it? Uh, yeah. And so he'll be coming on, and we'll be discussing with him on the first premise of the Shahada. I believe in the Creator. So yeah, nice. so that's uh, that will be, be coming on. That means. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and as brother Yusuf is saying right now in the chat, we're going to be doing a collab with the Three Muslims channel, inshallah. Yeah. And I think recently, me and Jake were on Ali Dawa's show. So if you want to check that out, we were discussing about one particular atheist that who converted to Islam. And we had discussion, me, uh, Jake, Abdul, Yusuf as well, we were discussing with him. Uh, and uh, yeah, if you, want to, you can check that one out as well, Ali Dawa's channel. Yeah, and uh, we're going to have to move on, but yeah. appreciate you calling in. Salam Thank alaikum, you. brother. Um, we had one super chat came out of nowhere. Dismantling Trinity and atheism is indeed a tedious process. May Allah guide them soon. I, I mean, uh, yeah, this, I didn't even know we had tedious. super chats. Yeah, yeah. So we had we have nobody waiting, but it's not nobody. It's literally somebody. Um, so you've got um, one hi. minute. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Hi, Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, I just have one question. When you guys talk about more than one God, you guys always use Christianity as an example, even though Christianity is not purely polytheistic. Why didn't you guys talk about the actual polytheistic religions like Hinduism? For example, I mean, their claims are completely different from the Christians. So... For example, yeah, I, think, I, think, I think you're yeah. right. I mean, but we just use, I mean, the Christianity, uh, Christianity is a monotheistic religion. And we... 
we respect that and everything. But then it's just certain aspects of Trinitarian belief that we can use yeah. as like analogies and we can use in the discussion about the oneness of God. But of course, you're right that certain polytheistic religions uh, that are, are, are much more, you know, straightforwardly polythe polytheistic than uh, yeah. Trinitarian beliefs. I, I don't know if you listened to the beginning of the stream, but the beginning of the stream, we didn't mention Christianity as an example. We were talking about it as a very general way in order to come to one uh, particular notion of a creator. Oh, uh, and he, uh, we came to a one... Um, one existence of a creator yeah so the necessity of oneness of god so it wasn't uh, we never actually mentioned at the beginning i think we've had a couple of christians in that come in uh one of the christians john fisher wasn't really arguing against all of the arguments that we presented, we presented about five arguments at the beginning of the stream he just argued he was presenting a particular very nuanced discussion around discernibility and max black yeah all right i just have another question we have many evidences, uh, archaeological and historical evidences of polytheistic religions, but not monotheism. Monotheism. So, do we have a good argument for the claim that monotheistic religions existed before polytheistic religions? Yeah, there are there are some people who I mean that that claim you just made is disputed. There are people who've done work on this. Uh, Maybe there are a few papers. Maybe we can uh, link it somewhere. But the point is that right now we're we're approaching this from like a metaphysical, philosophical stance. So it doesn't matter if, historically speaking, people were wrong. We're just questioning what exactly is right. That's what we're trying to come to. So um, yeah, and Islam as a religion is consistent with that in the sense that we realize that throughout the ages, people did distort belief in in, in, in in one God into something poly polytheistic all the time and they I think most of the time were the dominant uh, you know uh, they were dominant uh, uh, civilization of the time so and the believers in monotheism were uh, outnumbered and oppressed uh, that's generally the Quranic narrative that you see in, in, in some of the uh, stories that are related of the past but regardless of that I mean just because something uh, was you know the case for many people of the past it doesn't mean that it's uh, true we are deconstructing it philosophically to show that it isn't yeah all right thank you so much thank, thank you. you all right thank you take care all right so i guess that's it guys it's three o'clock here eight o'clock over there everybody wants to go watch the game um yep. Just just putting it uh, again that we are supposed to have apostate prophet on next week to discuss um, proof for the existence of God. So we're going to be talking about that with him, uh, inshallah, uh, primarily because he's recently uh, done two videos on his channel on Yusuf and myself. Um, so we want to address that. Uh, second thing right before we go is that I do plan on doing a stream on my own channel on Proverbs 8, and Terry, you're welcome to join uh, when I do that. But other than that, um, unless you guys Other than that, England else. just scored, so we have a no game ahead way. of us, and we so <laughs> need to get going, and hopefully Italy equalize soon. So, uh, okay. yeah. So, <laughs> so thanks, everybody, for joining, and, uh, yeah, see you next time, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.